welcome to episode seven of After the Ninth. I'm Cass Patterson with Dayton Sutherland. Date, it's been a long time. How are you? I'm cold. You're cold. Oh, okay. You know, you might want to layer up. That'd be the best advice I got for that one. Yeah, we hit like a snowstorm the last few days here in uh, Grand Prairie. So it's been uh, pretty poor weather and the roads are all drifted over. It's like minus 25 right now. So uh, we're just kind of hunkering down and staying in warm places. You know, that's pretty much the best advice you could have for that. Um, how are the horses doing in uh, that kind of weather? Uh, I don't know. Like, you know, usually more consistent the weather but uh this winter it's been like really really up and down it's just fluctuating a lot so when it's up and down like that it's kind of hard for horses to um you know get a really really good winter um as far as um you know our experience is concerned meaning like my dad and grandpa and and, and our family because um the reason i say that is because you know usually down south where where dad is at uh that weather um, is common where it's up and down all the time in Calgary just because of the Chinooks and stuff in southern Alberta. Um, and then the horses that winter in Grand Prairie, where I'm at, um, generally winter a lot better. Like their coats are a lot more thick. And, and uh, when, you're, you're, when they're shedding in the spring, it's a lot more, you know, clear and they look better. And, and uh, I'm assuming they feel better. It's hard to, you know, gauge that accurately. But anyways, um, what it seems when the weather fluctuates they don't winter as well so um it's been sort of a downside for us but it's also been really really warm so um you know ours stay on south feed oats for the you know whole winter which is unusual for a thoroughbred i i think you know as far as most guys are concerned i think they just probably like bucket feed and and stuff like that um but ours you know have have uh access to as much grain as they can um or want pretty much all winter, you know, we'll give them months off or whatever if they get too heavy or whatever. And because it's been so warm, uh, like 90% of the horses got heavy really, really quick. So um, a lot of them are on just hay now, but uh, this this cold weather helps a little bit, uh, you know, just kind of tone that down for sure. Well, I guess it's like with humans, when we're cold, we shiver a lot. So that makes us lose a little bit of weight too. Yeah, like, I don't know if it's so much, like, we'll make them skinnier. It's just, like, um, they won't get as heavy, like, continuously eating um, as much because, it, you know, your body uses energy um, the colder it is, you know, to, to keep yourself warm. It's the same as a horse. So um, they just don't gain as much excess weight. And then, you know, in the spring, like, if we get our horses too fat, it's tough to get them back down to you know race form uh, early on the season it usually takes a bit longer so it's just you know things that kind of combat themselves and it's hard to monitor them all too because you know there is so many of them like with us in our program there's like a hundred horses so it's it's really tough to you know keep a close eye on all of them is this one too fat is he losing weight quick enough like and then you just it usually bites in the butt um, once a year if, uh, you know, just mismanaging a horse uh, feeding-wise. Um, last year was my horse, Forrest, and, and uh, he got way, way, way too heavy um, early on. And, and uh, just more of a judgment call. Um, Grandpa and I, I guess, decided to leave him on oats. And uh, and uh, he almost got, like, like, so heavy that we couldn't afford to feed him um, oats during the spring when he was training, when he actually needs yolks because he's burning that much energy. So 
Um, he kind of had a poor spring and then it affected him a little bit later in the summer. And it, it's just, it, those things just all kind of come down and, and, and play into each other. They're not detrimental, but it's just like, it's a game of inches. You're trying to get the most out of your horses. So um, anyways, that's, uh, that's that. Um, we actually recorded this podcast on New Year's Eve. Um, so it's kind of a New Year's podcast, and uh, we've been teasing it on the team a little bit. It's Chance Vegan. Uh, I would think some of you would know that. Um, and uh, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty easy conversation. I think it was you and Chance sitting around having, like, a beer together talking, and I was just kind of sitting there trying to pipe in when I could. Yeah, like, he's he's a really, really easy guy to talk to, and, he, and he's a fun guy to, you know, more or less bullshit with. And uh, me and Chance, I, I know I said it a hundred times in the interview, but like, um, I know I'm probably going to catch shit for that. Like from somebody, someone's going to mock me for like doing this. Like, saying, Oh yeah, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. That'll probably be like the, the new thing. Like in the, in the Logan Gorse one, the very first podcast, everyone was saying, and that leads me to my next question. And that leads me to my next question. Everyone's mocking me. So, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect at this. I don't, don't, I know that, but, uh, either way, like me and Chance are, are, are similar just because the way, the people we come up around, meaning uh, my grandpa and ultimately uh, Ralph Began, uh, Chance's grandpa, traveled together, uh, you know, a long time ago. And then Mike, Chance's dad, outrode for my grandpa, and uh, as did my dad. So, um, you know, our families have been kind of intertwined, and, and Ralph was ultimately my grandpa's, you know, mentor um, as far as chuck wagon racing go and goes. And uh, my grandpa's style and everything ultimately stemmed from Ralph. Uh, and, and the way they drive and the, kind of the, 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 the gambles they take in, in big moments and, and being able to drive tough horses and their, and their horsemanship and the skill. And, and it, it's all tied in together between those two. And they trained together for a long time. So um, naturally when Chance was coming up, he was out riding for Grandpa and, and he learned a lot from him as well. And, and I learned from Grandpa. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're I don't know how old Chance is, um, but we're not that different in age, you know, I'm 22. So we're, we're coming up more or less the same era and we're coming up the same way with, you know, uh, family support, but not a lot of financial backing just being, you know, this young and stuff. Of course, yeah, sponsorship, but I, I know we said it on the podcast before. Um, just, it's, it's so expensive that usually sponsorship doesn't cover it all. Because, so you have to, you know, dip in your own pockets and if you don't, have very deep pockets like myself. It, it makes it a lot more tough, and, and Chance kind of obviously goes through that in the interview um, too. So it, it was an easy conversation just because um, me, like I understood a lot of, of uh, what he was talking about and going through and stuff. So um, yeah, no, we I had fun and, and uh, I thought he was great, and I think we just keep getting better and better as these podcasts go on, and uh, it was good to have Chance kind of you know be another stepping stone like in and working through this with us to, to to get better and to be better absolutely and i really enjoyed how chance uh he questioned you on things yeah like we we took quite a while like getting this one out and, and i just i don't know like i'm honestly i'm pretty introverted so like i honestly i don't necessarily it's not my first instinct to be like, you know, real talkative and, and, and put myself out there and stuff. So kind of was thinking like a kind of a, a different way to almost approach the podcast and stuff and, and uh, whatever. So anyways, I tried something a little bit different with chance and 
you know, it could just because he's such an easy guy to talk to, whatever. But I think it, I think it's working out a little bit better doing them this way and just kind of approaching how we are. And like you said, he was like, I don't know, he's just he's a natural speaker. He should be doing the podcast, honestly. <laughs> like that, he should be the guy that that has a has a show, or whatever. But um, yeah, nonetheless, the only other thing I wanted to cover before we, we go to the podcast was that um, in the show, uh, I ran the time where like I was hooking really rank horses that I knew rank and um, would almost be setting myself up for failure in the mornings and stuff when I was practicing. And then, um, you know, I kind of have some of those horses still in my barn. Like I kept them and and I race with them and and they do cause me problems uh, every now and then. Um, But, and and then Chance talks about hooking three brand new horses on an outfit and, uh, and, you know, kind of, kind of going for it. If you follow Chance and the way he, you know, if you're a fan of his and and the way he drives and stuff, um, he's almost like kind of like a, riverboat gambler that's kind of like a spit and chicklets term that that uh they use on there for like offensive defensemen you know what i mean um and the only reason i say that is like i think that's more or less like comes from ralph and kelly um that style of driving like kelly's thing was always say was always like you know, when you're there for the 10th night in Calgary, that's when you gamble. You don't gamble the first 10 nights. You you stay consistent. And then if you're worried that if you're on barrel four and you might not beat the guy, well, that's when you take the chances in the 10th night when you, you know, so, so it's kind of ingrained in the, in the system, if you will, uh, or like the way we'll, we'll drive. And obviously it, it pays off, um, you know, long story short, it paid off for me a couple of times, uh, switching horses around and, and putting them in places where, you know, uh, a lot of people told me they shouldn't be like, you know, my grandpa being and stuff. And, and, uh, just that, um, kind of, kind of loose system, uh, is, is, uh, shared by me and chance. And the only thing I wanted to stress was that these aren't just, you know, risks that we'll take for no reason. They're calculated risks where you can afford, um to be at a loss almost you know like we're not we're not like well chance might hook i'm just giving this example but chance might hook three brand new horses together um but he knows that ultimately he'll be in control he might not make the prettiest barrel turn he might not outturn anybody um but he knows ultimately that that uh, he can be in a safe position and that's just something that you can I think more or less assess because you've been in the sport for so long and, and you grew up in it and you just have a better, maybe a better feel for that versus somebody who's just started driving two years ago and didn't grow up in the sport or whatever. You just kind of get those instincts from watching so many races, you know, as a kid and stuff like that. And then I feel like I'm more or less the same way, you know, like I'll help this horse Nevada. He's my good right wheeler, but he's got a ton of mouth and, and a lot of times he'll fall start me or, or push me through the barrels and I can't get him stopped and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, I'll just more or less hook horses with, with Nevada that, um, you know, I can either handle or there's, there's a time and a place to take those risks um, knowing when you're in control. Like if say you're on a barrel one uh, at a sharp turning track, like say it's, uh, you know, I don't know, say Calgary or, or Grand Prairie or um, Grand Prairie, 
where the the bottom is is kind of a tougher one to get into almost uh, for me at least. Or say Saskatoon, where you know the the top barrel is very close to the fence. I'm not sure how many of you know the differences of the tracks and stuff, but the top barrel is very close to the fence, uh, forcing horses to go left, which um, you know kind of messes up the guys barrel one turn um so if you look at i don't know about the statistics but i guess that i would guess that uh saskatoon has a way higher um interference rate on the one barrel versus most other shows you know it'd be tough to get those you know stats but uh that would be my guess anyway so you know you wouldn't hook those horses knowing that it's a tough barrel and and uh and uh you're setting yourself up for a bad situation more or less. You might try it on a four barrel where you're on the outside. And if you, um, um, you know, are, are not in the best shape then at least you're on the outside. So, you know, with that, with that style, all I wanted to get across was that we're not taking these blatant and open risks. They are calculated and they are, um, you know, for design to either make the outfit better or get the horses under more experience or um, to see if it'll work because there's just not a lot of other time to get those, um, you know, experiences or practices in. Um, and sometimes you need to do it in, in a real race if you've done it enough in the mornings or whatever, or you don't have uh, the opportunity to do it in the morning, so you have to do it in a race or whatever. So um, I just didn't want to didn't want to put that out there that, that – uh, we're, we're just doing this, you know, crazy stuff just because I know that might be what it sounded like. I don't know if I'm, I'm just kind of going on here, but uh, anyways, I want to get that across. No, it's good that you get that across. And I mean, uh, we've had the conversation before. Uh, we had it at the runoff where uh, you talked about, you know, putting together the four horses that you had. And uh, you, you admitted back then that was a risk at the time, but it was a risk that you had you had thought about and you ultimately had to make yeah and like you'll see like um obviously I, in the runoff that's a good example i didn't make it to the top barrel i i and and that's the thing like that's the that's the problem with the calculated risk like i could have probably gone all the way to the top or tried to make the barrel and i might not have made it but then what happens is um you you are way out of shape for the bottom and then on a tight track like dewberry and a tight track like that um it's you're going to come pretty wide on that guy and there's not a lot of room for him to go if he sees you, you know? So, um, that's what I mean by calculator risk. If you're going to take that risk, well, then I just had to bite the bullet, turn the top as tight as I could and come out like it was a normal barrel turn. I wasn't trying to go to the top and then, you know, mess around, come at a 90 at the bottom, have my wagon swing wide and, and, and into the other guy. And you know what I mean? So if you're going to take these risks, you have to think about, um, the out, the, the you know what's going to happen if this risk doesn't work and and that's something that every wagon driver does I would think um, or at least most of them whether they admit or not or or know they're doing it or not um, every guy's always thinking about okay is this horse gonna go here this horse you know like like can I hook this horse here whatever um, it's just part of the game and uh, and uh, it's just something that you have to do when you're when you're figuring out your barn and your horses and and, uh, trying to get the outfits to match up and line up and stuff. Um, Just because it's, it's the same. There's no other way to get say a rookie horse in or, or whatever. It's the same as like a hockey team. Sometimes you just got to give a rookie the reps and give him some ice time. And and, uh, he might let in a few goals or it might go against you, but at least then you know what you have type of thing. Um, So yeah, anyways, it's, it's just, it's just more or less part of the game. 
and uh, I just wanted to again reiterate that 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 uh, those are the types of of risks that that we're taking and the reason we're taking them. Um, I just just you know don't want to be under scrutiny that that because uh, I think when I listened back to the podcast, which I never do, but I, I just thought that they kind of made it sound. Um, I, I didn't word it right, which which uh, I rarely ever do. So um, either way, uh, maybe we should we should turn it over to Chance. Yeah, I was uh, just about to think that. So here we go. Here's our interview with Chance Vegan. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very, very special guest on the podcast today. The 2019 Dawson Creek Stampede Champion, the 2019 Saskatoon Exhibition Champion, I guess. Five-time world outriding champion, the Rangeland Derby Rockstar, Chance Vegan. How's it going, Chance? Good, buddy. Thanks for having me. I hope you've been enjoying your Christmas, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. I haven't heard them all, but uh, I got a chance to listen to Logan after Calgary when he had his big uh, his big show there, and uh, Kelly. never get sick of listening to the King Talk Chuck Wagon Racing, so I'm looking forward to you spitting out some more content, and I enjoy uh, being here, so... Yeah, that's good. Thank you. We, we've been kind of like slow, um, you know, uh, putting these out and stuff like that, especially now in the winter time. And it's, it's tough because I've been working and then, you know, uh, everybody works, especially wagon drivers, uh, most of them anyway, in, in the off season. So it's kind of hard to get logistically guys lined up and then, and then uh, where you're going to, you know, sit down and, and have a you know, hour, two hour conversation with somebody. But uh, we're glad to have you. That's for sure. Yeah, about 100%. How's the uh how's it been going? How was it what was it like talking to Kelly, your grandpa? Was it everything you've heard before or did he have some new info to spit out? No, like so like usually like right now I got I don't know how many questions uh for you. It, you know, I kind of got topics and talking points that like, you know, I'm cuz cuz when I when I do these like especially with the guys I've had on so far like, you know, I'm I'm a fan of the sport of chuck wagon racing too like you know, I, I I try and pay attention, and I and I like the the the, the drama, the races, and and that type of thing, and the storylines involved. Like it's it's fun for me. So like, um, when I'm talking to to guys, I, I kind of get these questions that I've always wanted to ask or talk about or whatever, and, and now I get the opportunity to do that. But with Grandpa, like, I've heard everything he said a hundred times before. Like I I, I could have answered all those questions uh, for you, and I've heard. All, he's got more stories, so you know I'd like to have him on again, actually, because you know I kind of want to get more like more of a um, you know looser feel, and and uh, I kind of want to get like some of these old guys to tell stories about like you know some like the older legends in in uh, wagon racing, the characters like like you know like guys like uh, uh, a lot of people will know like Doyle Mullaney, like like that guy was um, you know they're quite a character at least when I was growing up, so. Oh, just hearing how some of those guys went and got down the road. Red Johnstone might be another color, colorful guy that, you know, the, the lifestyle those guys lived to wagon race was just was wild. I mean, it's still not easy, and what we do a lot of people think is pretty wild, and, you know, just the whole dynamic of, of traveling from show to show, packing your bags and, you know, hitting up venue to venue is, is hard for people to grasp going 100 miles an hour on a track, but it was even more uh, more Wild West, per se, back then. So, no, I look forward to hearing some of your uh, other guests in the future. I, I couldn't imagine. Uh, well, actually, I've, I've heard stories uh, that Grandpa told me, like, like back in the day, like how they got to show and show, and it was Western. But um, speaking of all these old guys, 
like who did you kind of come up around and, and like who was some of the guys that, that uh, you know, like made you say the, the driver, the horseman uh, you are today? Like, like was it, did you, you kind of, it seemed like to me, like from my eyes, I, mind you, uh, you're about 10 years older than me, maybe not quite that, um, but, you know, so I was, I was a little bit younger when I was watching you come up, but it, it seemed like you kind of took pieces from everybody, guys like, um, my grandpa or Rick Fraser or, or uh, your dad, obviously. So, um, like, who were who were some of the guys that, that you really took big pieces from and followed? Yeah, you're pretty much spot on. I I was always a big believer in that when you were doing anything, whether you know that could be any sport or your line of work. I think that we're all different, and to try to replicate yourself after one person just isn't really realistic. I think you got to take all the info you can from people that are successful and then try to make it work for yourself. And, and you got you to gotta take all the pros and cons, all the positives and negatives that come with that because what works for some guys and the advice they give you is not always going to work for you. So that's just kind of the, the journey that I took with wagon racing. It, for me, you know, naturally you're going to – you got your – your old man there for me I'm one of the one of the guys one of the many I suppose that was born into it and you know I looked up to my dad as an outrider which was why I always focused my energy on being an outrider I never really wanted to be a driver until I got older and uh, your grandfather would be another pretty big influence I he was so dominant Rick Fraser those two guys were, were doing most of the winning when I was coming up as a rider so and me out riding for them first second call all those years naturally i just thought it made a lot of sense they were winning they had huge resumes and uh i i got along with them you know i respected their opinion so between mike kelly rick uh outside of them i probably just would try to watch guys you know a buddy vince miller a luke turnier and then you just gotta driving is such a hands-on thing like, you can talk all the theory in the world, and that's all yeah. fine and dandy, but it's, you have to get out there and drive. Like, you ha- it's, it's like a golf swing. Like, you can study it inside out, but if you're not, like, off on the links and hitting ball after ball, figuring out what works, you never will. And it just, things didn't really start to click for me until I, I noticed I started to get a lot of reps under my belt. And that took a few years because growing up, it was always get on that out riding horse and, and then go to another guy's barn, and there was four or five to ride over there. And you never really got in the box and drove, or at least I didn't. Yeah. I kind of wish, I kind of regret that I didn't drive more when I was younger, but it, it was just the way things worked out. But I don't have any regrets that way. It's just you look at the guys that started young and drove, you know, on a consistent basis, like, like Kurt Bensmiller, probably your number one example. You know, mm-hmm. and he—I think that really pays dividends for him later on, and I think I'm just starting to catch up now. Or even even Kelly was the same way. Like I, I after I actually did the podcast with Kurt, because like you know, like I I've grown up around Kurt and you and and all these guys, but like I I don't think I've ever had a conversation where I sat down and talked to Kurt for for that long of a of a period. So like never never actually knew a lot of the stories. Like you know, you kind of kind of hear him around and stuff but but what i'm kind of putting together here is like that guy still to this day has has you know whatever uh five worlds and or or four worlds and 
for uh, Calgary. So I'm so bad with these numbers, but um, you know, he's, he's, he's as successful as he is and he's still buying, you know, two loads of horses, which is usually like 14 head of horses every year um, and keeping them around just so that he can get his reps in and, and keep driving. And then when I talked to my grandpa, he said that him and uh, Ralph, uh, your grandpa used to talk, uh, or uh, used to train, uh, what was it, 12 outfits a day or something. So they each drive six outfits a piece every single day. And then he said, by the time these other guys, uh, like he did that for whatever it was, 10, I, I just forget the number, but 10 or 15 years, they did that. And then by the time that, you know, other guys would come around uh, in, the, in the sport and as it was kind of flourishing, they already had like a whole nother career under their belt just from you know all the driving and spring training so i don't know if 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 my grandpa and kurt uh swear by like you say getting your reps in i mean that that's got to be huge and I, I was the same way for same way as you more or less like it i never really got in the wagon box um and, and drove a bunch especially under like uh faster paced training or, or driving because like um, one, I was 130 pounds. So I was like 17. So I just never was strong enough or big enough. And then, uh, the other thing was, is, uh, with dad and grandpa, uh, you know, being like always trying to be very competitive and, and race, like in the period that I could be practicing and could be driving, um, they weren't necessarily wanting me jerking on their horse's mouths and, <laughs> and practicing my skills on, on, yeah. uh, their good ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, you could throw Buddy in there, uh, Dave Lewis. Those were guys that drove a lot. And I remember, I remember after your grandpa, he didn't get his, you know, his butt kicked, but he had been playing second fiddle for a few years, where he was getting second a lot. And I was, I was, it was a long time ago. I think I was eighteen or nineteen, and he called me one March and wanted to go to Osoyoos, British Columbia, like nowhere near Grand Prairie and take a liner load of new horses and half a dozen draft horses and go drive and train for a month. You know, like mm-hmm. he, he was always thinking outside the box, but I guess what we're getting at is, you know, there's something to be said about that. And don't think he wasn't coming in ready to go like with his hands, maybe not that he needed it. He was probably on another level than 95% of the drivers, but it's just, it's such a hands-on sport the more you can drive, it's just so important. And I think that we're probably getting away from that a little bit now with like the truck training and people have all these different methods of training, but you look mm-hmm. really revered drivers of, of our past, Dallas Dorchester's, you know, the Regis, Kelly's, those guys drove, like they, they had to drive to train. So it's something that I kind of got back into uh, when I started, it was a lot of truck training, and then I would be gone, like, literally galloping horses for other guys. And then, you know, now I'm focusing it more around really driving the horses and getting them in shape on the wagon. You don't want to sour the older ones, obviously, that know what they're doing. You don't want to overdrive them, but I've got a really young barn. So I noticed this last spring and, and the one before I've made a note to just to try to drive more, just to, to get better myself and just to get back into doing things that way. Right. I honestly, I've uh, like just being a young guy, I'm the same way as you, like I'm trying to take little bits of pieces and, and it's kind of hard because you don't want to waste like too much time 
you know, trying something that, that uh, for me, actually, I was told not that it wouldn't work or whatever uh, by my grandpa or dad or whoever, because we get so much influence. But um, I'm going to, this year specifically, I'm going to try and do quite a, actually quite a bit more like how you're driving. Like I want to go down to a, I get it. I want to do it last year and the year before, but uh, just logistically it didn't work with like uh, help. And it's so hard to find people to hook all the new horses stuff. But I, I, I'm going to give that a, give that a go this year and like, you know, like maybe just drive the the younger ones and hook them in the lead and, and try them on, you know, four corners of the wagon. And, and, and one, I'll be more efficient and, and uh, more in tune, like when the season actually starts, I'm, I'm hoping anyways. And then the other thing, I'm the same way as I got a really young barn because, you know, I've started only whatever it was three or four years ago. And then hopefully some of these new horses can get like their reps in and, and, and they can figure it out, you know, like even everything so much is like, uh switching their leads when they're uh gonna turn or or you know some of them real good old horses like do things like like i i, I drove a left leader of dad's and i got him now uh his name's winner and he's about 18 but uh i had him for a couple of years and, and he makes he's a he's a left leader but he makes any right leader look good because what he does is he will dip as soon as you release pressure on his mouth he'll dip his head underneath the right leader and force that right leader to turn and like he'll kind of just like he just sets up the whole outfit from, from, you know, the, almost the outside. So um, I don't know if it would necessarily give horses um, that much intuition. Um, but honestly, it seems like it's been working for you because, because you've got uh, some of these horses, I'm not sure on all their names, like this, you know, Descartes horse and, and all these really young ones are like, they're like five years old and, and uh, they look like superstars. Yeah, we got pretty lucky with the load that we bought in California. A couple of years ago, I was kind of at a crossroads. I was kind of looking at the herd and evaluating where we were at. And I, I had a pretty good outfit coming, but, you know, we would have a good run and you'd finish seventh or eighth. And, I was, like, I couldn't, I couldn't crack the top five. Every once in a while you would if one of those top guys run into trouble or whatever, but... Yeah, I decided I was gonna start over, and I just I sold all my older horses and just started over. I had a deal with a, a buddy of mine uh, that was running in the westerns, Colin Leffley. Yeah. So I was gonna be able to train with him. So I was still gonna be able to use these horses to train the new ones that I was gonna acquire. But I I really took a big risk and said, you know, I can't. I'm I'm not gonna win with what I have right now. They're they're at an age where we know what they are. They're, if anything, they're going to be on the decline. Mm-hmm. So we went south and we bought four four-year-olds, uh, four three-year-olds, and a two-year-old. Hmm. We even bought a two-year-old. And that was, you know, that's a, you don't want to be running them at three, but it was a, it was a long-term plan altogether. And yeah. I got those horses in a lot of races, kind of okay. bit the bullet. Yeah. And last year they were they were totally different horses that one year made a huge difference and majority of them worked out. So I'm excited if they take another step forward for 2020, I'm really pumped up to see what, what they can do together. I'm kind of in the same boat. Cause like it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a financial game. And that's, I, that's, that's why like I, I wanted to get you on, I, I want to get you on this podcast like from the start, but um, mostly because like, I kind of understand like the processes and, and, um, and whatnot that you're going through because uh, like we're very similar in that, like we both come from wagon families. We're both coming up around generally the same guys, generally in the same era and stuff like that. And I'm going through the same thing 
maybe kind of that you were before is like, it's kind of at that point, like, I don't want to get rid of too many of the old horses because in my mind, like you can't really drive, you know, four brand new horses on a, on an outfit and then expect to like me, I'm just trying to make Calgary right now. So I can't drive all these brand new horses and then try and make it or, or, or at least run consistent enough to make it into Calgary. And I'm not going down to California buying all these, um, you know, not buying class horses. I'm not sure if that's what you were doing or, or what, but it's kind of like, should I get rid of the core or like, you're kind of like almost saying like, like a, like a general manager of like a hockey team or something. You know what I mean? It's exactly what it is. And it's not a, it's not an easy call to make. Like, cause the older horses, that's your safety net. Like those horses that you talked about, the winners that, you know, they know their way around the barrel pattern. They're probably going to make your right leader better. If you have a younger horse there and they're reliable, right? And you yeah. know what you're going to get every time. And there's a lot of value in that. And you don't want to go out there with a bunch of green horses. And then there's that other voice in your head saying, you know, these tracks, the majority of them, you're running nowadays, it's been too wide. The mm-hmm. surfaces have been softer and slower. If you look at the times we were running in, you know, Dawson Creek, Rocky Mountain House, Century Downs, these were all tracks that probably catered to my herd, I would say, because it was slower, it was more laboring. And yeah. the younger, stronger horse was able to power through that. And don't get me wrong, this is, there's a lot more to it than that, but you're at the end of the season, and a lot of those older horses, that they've gone through those, you know, the, the Pinocas and Calgary's where you've got that, you know, 16-day stretch, you know, and they're going like crazy, so they're emptying a little bit of the tank. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough decision to make. The, the ideal way to do it, obviously, is to have a balance. But like it, like I said, it's you. You got to have some capital to go and acquire those young ones. And where do you get that from? And I, for me, it was I'm gonna I'm gonna sell and take that money south and reinvest it this way. So it's everybody's different. Some people would think it's crazy to do it like that, and I don't know. It's different strokes for different folks. It's eventually just comes down to you and the faith you have and what you have, and you'll know what to do. So when you bought these horses, like, like for me, I'll spend an average of like, I don't know what I average this year. I actually had a pretty cheap. I think I was probably about around a thousand bucks a horse, which is, is, um, um, like very cheap con- considering what we normally do at some years. It's been about $5,000 a horse. Like if you go on the States or whatever, but like, so like saying that's where most guys are buying, like, were you, were, did you buy these horses? Um, cause I know you're, you're kind of like a, um, a horse racing junkie you know what i mean like you're you're following it and you're and you're right into it so were these horses that you're like following and then you claimed them for for more than say what an average guy would spend but just because you had like good intuition or good gut feeling on them or 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 how did it play out no not that's well for one it's not real easy to just go find a track in the states walk around the barns yeah. and find these horses right like it's First of all, you got to get signed in by a trainer, and how how are you going to meet a trainer in Cal? I've never been to California, you know what I mean? Like I don't know yeah. anybody there. So my my strategy was I was going to claim a horse because if you're providing them with business, then they'll give you business, right? So I bit right. the bullet and I claimed a horse, and I ran it back and I paid the training bills and all that crap, right? And yeah. in in turn, I made a relationship with the trainer, and he was one of those middle of the road trainers. He was. You know, he's not a Bob Baffert or a Doug O'Neill, but he was 
a guy that would typically win 60 races a year at 20%, which is pretty good. And I thought it was a good fit. He, uh, he was a fan of wagon racing when I explained to him, you know, what I did and what I do with these horses and stuff. And I'm looking for horses that have certain injuries that aren't going to be able to handle the weight of a jockey anymore, like a boat tendon. And uh, we got a good relationship going, right? So I've been buying most of my horses off of him, but it took a, it's a long process to do that. Like I had to invest so much money to get that relationship rolling. And now it's just starting to pay off. And that's just how I did it. Um, now I'm paying probably between 1500 and 5,000 us for right. horse. And then of course it's all the other things that come with it. You got to get the blood work done and you know, your Canadian paper, passport papers for the border. And then you got to pay tax at the border. It's, so and then the shipping too. Yeah, I've been doing it myself, just just because I, I like to do it myself. I know the horses are getting their heads down when I'm stopping, and they're getting water and feed when they need to be. If you don't cater to the horse on a ship, you can they can get shipping fever. Different. I've heard different horse stories. So if I was gonna spend the money that I'm spending, I wanted to take care of my my product, right? Like myself. Yeah. So. I've been doing it myself, and I, I like it. And now I'm starting to learn my way around California a little bit better. So it's been going good. I'm glad I did it, and I wish I would have did it years ago. What uh, what track was that at? Or did you go to multiple tracks? Yeah, went to all went to three. I went to Delmore, Santa Anita, and Golden Gate. And I ended up going to a place called uh, Pleasanton, uh, just for fun, for something to do. Golden Gate was running dark days. They weren't going, and a lot of those trainers will ship their horses to the different fairs, like Fresno, Stockton, all those little towns will have... Smaller ones. Yeah, they'll have, like, two-week stints where they'll put on, you know, a little fair, and I went to Pleasant. It's actually where I ended up getting uh, my left leader, Tana. He was, he was pretty high on the uh, equine award point list. I don't know where he ended up, but... I wasn't supposed to buy him. He wasn't for sale. And he went off at uh, four to five odds for 10,000 non-winners at three or 12,000 non-winners at three. I can't remember, but he fell out of the gate and uh, never really caught up after that and caught the owner in a weak moment. He sold him to me right there. Yeah. And so when I went back to his stall, I kind of palpated him and he was, he was really off in his hind end. And I thought, man, this, he was another three-year-old horse, and I right. thought, I'm gonna... So you got to be there sometimes to get lucky. Like, buying these horses over the phone is just about impossible sometimes. But if you're there in the moment, you can get one like that. And that was just, you know, pure luck. I didn't go to Pleasanton to buy. I thought I was done buying. But, you know, that happened, and we got we got a really nice horse out of the deal. I like those. I like those stories. Like I, I, I've got them too, and I know a lot of guys have those kind of stories where you're just like right, right place, right time, and you buy this one horse, and it's usually a cheap one, and then you don't really want them. It's you know just gets an extra hassle to get them out of you know that uh, place, and then you got to get them with the rest, and you got to ship them home, and all that stuff, and then it turns out to be one of the best of the bunch. That's uh, happens every time. I swear. I know, and that's part of what's so fun about buying the new ones is you never know what you're going to get. Like, from a stake source to one that just can't, you know, run out of conditions, you just, you never know. Everybody's got so many good horses that were very, very average racehorses. 
You know, look yeah. at Kurt's right leader was very average racehorse. Kelly had a pile of them. I think Bobby was uh, was a maiden. Yeah. You know, so you never know. There was a horse in uh, San Francisco that I spent two hours trying to load because he was big and beautiful and his papers looked lights out and I wouldn't give up. I was at this guy's farm trying to load him. I could not get him in, but I wouldn't quit because I was so sold that this horse was just the made to be a wagon. Yeah, and I had nothing but a nightmare time with him, and <laughs> I never ever did get him in a race. I sold him to Ron Bullen. Oh, really? Yeah, and then the Dekarchi of the load was the horse I was probably the least excited about, and he ended up being the best one. So just what you said, you just you don't know what you're going to get. And Dekarchi's the, the right leader, is that right? And he's a five-year-old as well now? He's a left leader, and he's also five. That's right. And he's he's never been anywhere but the left lead. Okay. Like, so just kind of those ones. Like, so so you're probably more similar the same way. Like, most horses will start out on the wheel, um, and then they'll graduate to the lead if, once they get years of experience. However, um, the way it is for us, like the real naturals, you might have maybe one every two years or whatever, or one a year that, that goes straight to left lead. Is that kind of the way you do it as well? No, actually, it's not. It's like almost the opposite. I used to be the same way because I, I grew up around Mike, Kelly, and they all did it like that. And I started, when I when I bought these horses, I was, like I said, I was starting over. I, I yeah. put the horses where I thought they might work. You're guessing, obviously, but, you know, you can go off build and, athleticism and a horse like Dekarchi yeah. pretty narrow is you're going to hope he's going to make a leader because he's almost undersized for the wheel so right. I, I from the first time I hooked him I just put him in fours on the left lead okay and that's what I that's what I did with all those new ones I, I put him where I where I needed to fill a hole where I thought they would work and I drove him in fours right from day one and I'm not saying that's the way to do it like if anything goes wrong now you've got a bigger uh you know, you've got a lot more to conquer as far as if a horse gets over the pole or gets over a tug. Instead of dealing with one horse, you're dealing with three other ones. But yeah. it was just, I wanted to try it, and it worked. I'm not saying it'll work next time, but it, it definitely worked with this load. And I'm going to I'm gonna do the same thing this spring. Just try to think about where you need the horse to work, where you think he'll work based on his athleticism and build and then go right to it and then try to figure it out from there that's that's more or less what i'll do too um now but before it was like it was it was always keep a horse in the left wheel and don't try that horse there and, and uh like you know I, I grew up around like grandpa was was my main um you know teacher when i was learning to drive and breaking horses and i'd ask him questions all the time and and uh and he would always kind of um, almost, you know, like for those of you that, that know Kelly, he's, he's a, he's, he's very brash, he's high energy, he's, he's just, that's, that's the type of character he is. And, uh, you know, I, I'd ask him about hooking, say, this horse or a new horse or something on the right lead or left lead and going out and trying, like when I was learning to drive in the mornings and stuff. And, uh, he would mock guys almost like other wagon drivers that would try horses, um, on like, say, all four corners of the wagon or, or constantly swap them around and stuff. 
and uh, just because more so that was kind of the old way to leave a horse on the but the old rule that he always told me was that a left wheeler usually translates to the right lead and a right wheeler usually translates to the left lead and you would leave a horse on the wheel for a couple of years so he figured it out and then you would move him up to the lead um, and then hopefully uh, the transition be smoother and stuff but um, when you don't have any horses like you know like you did it or or um, I did it for the last you know, a few years. Last year was the first year I actually had horses that I'd driven before um, and, and from a previous season. And when you don't have those horses, like the only way that I found to do it was just to literally try almost every single horse uh, on the left lead or on the right lead in my barn. And then, um, I don't know, the only problem that I had with it was that they would give me good trips you know, for a few runs or, or, you know, maybe half a season or a season. And then all of a sudden, like they almost like not all of them, but most of them would like kind of fall off the ledge. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't just like, yeah. I don't know. That's just, that was just kind of more or less my experience. But when you don't have any other options, like I, I you know, this year, again, I'm, I'm short left leaders. I don't have really any, you know, bonafide left leaders. So I'm back in the same boat. I'm going to try every single horse that, that I'm not going to use at the other, you know, three corners of the wagon that, that aren't my like rock solid, you know, core horses or, or maybe I'll take one of those and, and move them up to left lead or something, but I'm going to have to do the same thing and just, and just kind of roll the dice and see what works in the spring. Yeah. And I mean, it, it depends what you're going down the road with too. Like, like if you're in Kelly's position and you're taking 45 head down the road you've got a little bit more flexibility to be picky on where you're going to place your horses and if you're going to keep them in a position. And I don't get me wrong. I think that the way That's to do point. it is that, to have an outfit together and keep them together and not have to switch them around. That, that seems to have been what's been most successful for guys, obviously, like when they get an outfit gelling and nothing changes and they get to grow together. But if you're going down the road with two and a half outfits, you better have a horse in that herd that can be your Swiss, Ar- Swiss Army knife because yeah. you're not, you're not, you don't have 40 head to lean back on and say, okay, if this left leader gets stone bruise, there's four other ones that I, I know can go there. You know, when I was starting, I didn't have hardly any horsepower. And if, if I were, gonna, were to be out of position, I needed to know that this wheeler on, you know, the third outfit, if you wanted to call it that, it was more of like, close your eyes and hope for the best because everything's headed in a different direction but yeah you gotta know you got a horse that can fill in those spots and i think it's just kind of dependent on what you're taking down the road what your operation size is and what you can get away with so changing your mentality you kind of ended up reaping the benefits of it with winning two shows and getting a um equine uh an equine all-star this year yeah, I mean, we got really lucky in Saskatoon. I mean, we had two really good runs on barrel one and two, but on um, night three, we had a horrendous turn, and it was we were lucky to get out of there. It felt like every horse was going at a different speed and in a different direction. It was really, really but messy. It's, but It's got to pay off at some time. Like, you create your own luck. Well, that's right, and, like, what I'm getting at is we had a really, really bad run and we, we dropped from first to eighth and I did not think there was any way I was going to jump the other seven guys on night four. So I just went back to the outfit that didn't work because I figured 
if I just make my barrels, we'll have a decent, uh, we'll get some average points out of it. And they need to get out there again because it can't get any worse. And I think in some cases, if you would have been a little bit closer to the top, you would have switched outfits and got something a little bit more reliable out there. But because I was out of it in my eyes, I went back to it, but they worked. You know, they're young, they're really green. There was three first-year horses on, and they had such a terrible run the night before, but you never know what steps they're going to make and how much they're going to grow from run to run. So that was a bit of a blessing. And, I mean, we had a lot going for us, too. We were right after a harrow. We were in an earlier heat, and you talk about track variants and what have you. That that particular track really plays well to – after the Arrow in an early heat. So we were fortunate to win Saskatoon. Dawson, I was really proud of the horses. They really were starting to come together. And like I said earlier, they're, the young horses really powered through that laboring track. So when when the track's playing slow, for me, the, the, the youth really shine. Yeah, you, uh, I don't know, like you, you talk about it like it's almost um... – like you're 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 being very humble about it but to me like in my eyes you've been knocking on a doorstep because that was because Saskatoon was your first championship right like first win yes yes right and to me like like you know that might be your your first um show championship but you've been knocking on the door for a long time like you've made the the stampede dash now you competed in what three times I I don't think I've been in three I've been in a couple and uh been in a couple semis that didn't go well i was there once for myself and and once driving for uh my dad mike right right well i just i remember the first year that you come on i don't remember the exact year it was probably about well you would but uh, 2015 or something your first calgary stampede yeah, earlier than that, 2014 or 2013. I'm like you. They're all okay. the years start to blend together a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. What? So yeah, you you kind of came off like like almost like hot off the press. Like I remember, um, like Stampede's the the it's like the playoffs, right? It's kind of weird because in the middle of the season, but it's 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 our playoffs. It's it's where everything matters. So you you know you're kind of watching like after night one and two, you're kind of watching, okay, like, you know, which guys are strong, which guys are, are weak, and, and who's having, you know, who's, who's being, um, you know, you playing to their, um, what's the word, I'm looking, expectations and, and stuff like that. And, and you kind of had, it seemed like a, like a strong start or strong outing, you know, from day one. And then, you know, you, it was your first time at the Calgary Stampede, but, um, you know, as day five came and as day six came and as day seven came, you, you didn't, you didn't like, almost, you didn't shy away from the standings or you didn't drop or anything like that from, from what I remember anyways, you know, that was, I was, I was quite a bit, I was seven years younger than I am now, but, uh, you know, I, I still remember it. And then I remember, um, you know, kind of, uh, talking about it with somebody like, uh, one of the outriders, I believe it was actually Cole Somerville. Um, at that point, he might not have been on the tour then, but, um, I was talking to him and, and, uh, he said, we were talking about how good you were doing since you were, you know, uh, air quotations, a, a rookie, maybe a rookie at the stampede, but you'd been driving for, a, a you know, a year or so. No, what that was always, oh, you've been driving for yeah five, four or five years then that would have been, um, but, uh, anyways, you had this like sign hanging in the, um, in your barn, I believe, and it said, I came to win. And that kind of seemed like your whole mentality. And then you kind of, 
obviously you didn't win it that year, but you kind of took it almost by storm and, and kind of made your presence. And I believe that's actually when Les, like I've, I've been waiting for one of these. I'm not good enough yet, but Les gave you the nickname, the Rainbow Derby Rockstar. So like, what was that, you know, kind of year like, like I just, I just, it was just, you know, memorable for me to watch you do that. So, so like, how did that all play out in, in your eyes? Well, to the rock star thing first, I, I found the closest gas station to the, to the grounds because I realized I didn't have a pair of glasses to wear and I bought a pair of white sunglasses for no reason other than convenience. It was close and I was in a hurry and I bought these white shades and then, I don't know, from the eye in the sky to last, he, he got rock star out of that somehow, but it's been, <laughs> it's been a fun nickname, whatever, but uh, I don't know... My dad was not in Calgary that year, and that played a big role in us making the semis. And I didn't know – I thought I knew how to drive, and I didn't. And it was kind of a blessing in disguise because when you don't know any better, you really are just letting them roll. And uh, I had a couple nice horses on my outfit, and my second outfit was was very, very average. But I took took three horses off of – my dad and a couple outriding horses and then all of a sudden you had uh two good outfits and yeah. uh, you, as you know like one horse can turn an average outfit into a good one well i took three really good ones from mike and next thing i know i, I i'm sitting here with two good outfits i've been having a poor year so i'm hooked pretty soft and i i thought you know this might go okay for me and it did and uh we come up short in the semis i think i think that fall started no, you had an outriding penalty, didn't you? Okay, I don't know. I, thought, I know a penalty. I know a penalty happened somewhere along the line. At any rate, we we got beat, but it was a really good ride and a good experience. And it it's good to have a little bit of that success early on. It lets you know that you can kind of, you know, you can play with the big boys, and it gives you a little bit of confidence. And and furthermore, when when you put those outfits together, when I combined a few of Mike's with some of mine you start to get an idea of what a good outfit is supposed to look like. And I think yeah. that that was a big thing too, because I don't know how many times when I was starting, I thought I had something going and I thought I'd made a good turn and I thought I barreled good. And then Story I of my life. And I'm not out turning anybody in heat seven, eight or nine. You think you're going fast and you're yeah. kind of going through the motions. Yeah. And so to get an idea of what it's supposed to look and feel like to drive a decent outfit, it sets your bar different. And then you know you know what that's supposed to be like, and you can gauge from there. And I think that is huge. And I think that probably uh, – I think that would help a pile of guys that start out driving if they could somehow – get in the wagon box. I, I remember doing it with your grandpa. I remember doing it with Luke Turnier, Rick, where I just said, I want to stand behind you in the morning and just mm-hmm. watch it go when the horn goes and just feel it, just what it's like to actually get out of there quick. And then, you know, and so I, that was a, that was really an advantage to me from that point forward was that getting to drive two good outfits and knowing and feeling what it's supposed to look like. Cause until you do, you're like how I used to be. You think you're going somewhere in a hurry and you're not going anywhere, you know? Yeah. I've, I've, I'm the, like so guilty for that. Like every horse I buy off the track, maybe not every single horse, but every, every other year, 
uh, like I'll pull a couple horses and, and I'll be calling dad or dad. I'm like, well, this horse is a superstar. He's, he's going to be the best. I'm going to have him forever. You know, like every single horse I got is, is going to be, uh, uh, um, you know, one of the real good ones. And it's just, it's very naive, but I never, I never got too much out of like just feeling the speed of the wagon. Maybe like I was just almost like immune to it. Like cause training with dad and grandpa all the time, like I'd always be in the wagon, never driving, but I'd always be in the wagon. So that, so like feeling the speed of like some of them good horse, like he, dad had this one horse uh, named Tex, who was a gray and, and uh, it's one horse that most people are familiar with. He had a couple real, real nice horses that year. And I don't know what he finished. He, he, he might've been, you know, top five or top 10 in the world that year and come close in Calgary. So they, they were pretty nice horses and stuff. So and I sat in a lot of those outfits a lot. And so, so, you know, the, the speed um, never really did much for me, but, it's completely different or at least it was for me like when you're the one holding on the lines because all of a sudden like when you're going with like the you know the top barrel the horn goes you're headed to the top like before you know it it's right beside you you know what i mean you should have been turning you know three four jumps ago because you got just so much more momentum and 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 stuff like that so um I, i definitely know where you're coming from there that's that's for sure tex was uh gray left leader yeah, he started. I I always told Dad too that he started on the left wheel, and he would like he would lift the wagon off the ground, like he would just uh, punch it so much, uh, like you know, every single time. And then and then Dad uh, um, wanted to move him to the left lead, but then on the left lead he almost like he would false start a lot as he got older. And then um, yeah, I don't know. It just it seemed like he like charged too much, and then and then Dad just missed that, um, you know, launching the wagon off the ground every single time, like on that outfit. So just kind of like, I don't know if it, if it, if it ruined the outfit, but like, uh, if, if the, if the, if the leaders are, are, you know, going to get hit in the ass by the lead eveners, um, they're going to start too. That, that's only going to happen once. And that horse is punched every single time, like faithfully, not that it doesn't, you know, play a difference or play a role with the horse on the lead, but I always just felt that, I don't know, that horse was, um, better on the wheel, but um, Dad would argue with me. That's for sure. How were how were things for your dad after winning Pinocchio? Did he did he feel a big sense of relief? Because like I know from I outrode for your dad a pile, and going into a lot of shows, I I thought he was one of the guys that to beat, and he always seemed to be the bridesmaid. Like he was probably like the Phil Mickelson for a while. You know, the best golfer to never win a major, and then he went and started you know, crushing it. Did he feel like he got a big monkey off his back or? Yeah, that was, that was huge for him. Like he was totally like that because he, you know, the one year he, he won the, the dash of the stampede and then um, they give him the, the false start uh, when he fell off the wagon seat. Right. Like, so, you know, that. I was behind one. him. <laughs> oh, were you? Yeah. yeah. So, and then, and then the one time uh, him and grandpa were, um, racing in Pinocchio for the dash. And this was in like 2009. And then, um, so he claimed, uh, and, and I, and grandpa said too, I, I guess, but there were seagulls on the track on the back stretch. And, uh, one of them hit his, uh, it was his right leader, I believe, uh, dash with a gray horse. And, uh, and I can't remember if the horse stumbled or whatever it was. And dad ended up losing that race by, by two one hundredths of a second. So he's like, was, was knocking on the doorstep and it's painful to watch guys do that just just you know be there be do the right things all the time but um yeah that was you know obviously it does pay off if you keep at it so that was huge for him and and like 
I don't know, this sport could like drive you insane. Like I'm only four years in and it feels like it drives me insane. Like just because you, you think you're doing the right things, you feel like you're doing the right things and then things just, you know, don't shake out your way or just one thing could have changed. You would have been here or done that. You know what I mean? So it's just, I don't know that it, it was huge for him. And, and he's had like, like, like um, now he's kind of at the point where grandpa always was, is that like, he's got deeper barns now. He took, took some more horses and, and, and kind of, you know, built up his pens. And, and now he's at like what you were saying earlier is like where he's got four right leaders and, and six left leaders. And, and these are, these aren't like slouches, like almost every, like his, his fourth string right leader is better than my first string right leader. You know what I mean? So um, it, it, that was good for him. That's for sure. Yeah, he's got a lot of depth there. But the, the Seagull story is a true story. I was riding in that heat, and I watched it. And you, it rode all the way up the lines, and I must have got close to Mark if it didn't make it to him. It had to have come close. But And I think it was one one-hundredth of a second, not two. But that's that's a decent argument to make, as much as I would hate to agree with Mark, because I, I think I was riding for Kelly. Well, for sure I would have been. Uh, and rooting for Mark to lose. Uh, it's not a bad argument because we were talking about a whisker, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, that would have been a, probably one of the more memorable races for both Mark and, and Kelly, I'm guessing. Speaking of uh, old stories, um, you told me one time, I remember we were in Bonneville. I don't remember what year. I think it, it was either the first year I started out riding or, or the second year. And anyways, we're sitting on your liner and it was, uh, I think it was the last night. So, um, or it was the first night it was, it was, we weren't racing anyways, that's for sure. And, uh, we were, you know, there were some people, I don't know if it was sponsors of that and, and, uh, and, uh, having beers and, and just, you know, talking or whatever. You told me this story, um, about, about, uh, like you and, and, and how you come up like out riding and stuff. Cause like I said, in the intro, you're, you know, five times world camp. So obviously you, you figured it out. Right. Um, and I, you know, I was asking and stuff and you said that, that, um, Mike, um, your dad would send you out on tougher horses, like horses that would, um, in by definition tough, I mean, they, you know, they would, uh, charge to the top or, or, you know, um, leave you in the dust or, or uh just real stubborn hot-headed like like piggy horses and then you said like like that would um that taught you you know because you had no other option other than to get on and and uh it kind of like learned the hard way um so you know like could you reiterate that a little bit and then my next question like following that is like did you take the same um approach when you were driving yeah like well Going to the outriding thing, one of the scariest days ever was the day I thought that I was never going to make it as an outrider. And that, going back to what you're saying, Mike would just take horses off the wagon sometimes. Yeah. Straight off the wagon and tell me to go behind. And I was pretty short at that age. Like, I'm talking 14, 15, uh, not real big, barely reached the horn on some of those big wheelers. And these horses were crushing me, like just... I'm not even getting close to the job done. And I thought that's how it was because I was too young to know any better. So yeah. there was a tough time there where I thought, man, my childhood dream of being an L-rider is coming to a crashing sudden halt here because I can't even get this done in the morning when nobody's around. Yeah. And then looking back now, like I wouldn't send those horses out with <laughs> the grown men that are out riding nowadays. Yeah, I exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't subject my own outriders to riding those 
horses, not in the morning or at night or ever until they've been rode down. And, you know, yeah. some of them are just not made to be out riding horses. But I learned on a lot of those. And it was, it was a tough period for me because it was, you know, you're looking in the mirror going, I can't cover these monsters. Like, they're big, they're strong, and they're way too powerful. And you're hanging on to a spaghetti string lead line, and you're supposed to get on this thing. And turns out it's not, it's not really like that. You know, those horses aren't going out there at 7 o'clock at night. But back then, when you're 14 and, you know, your old man's putting you through the ringer, you don't know any better. But looking back, I'm not saying I would ever do that with my kid, but looking back, I think it was, I think it helped me in the long run, for sure. Well, you, you told me that, and then, like, I I immediately, like, I was, I don't know if I, like I said, I don't know at what point I was in my career or whatever, but um, obviously by then I was already out riding, so I, I had a little bit of experience with tough horses, and I was kind of the same same way, just this way later, like, I was I was already out riding, but I, I had a very, very easy start. I had one that, you know, old horse named Judge, which I know you rode, and he was, like, 14 when I started getting on him, and, like, as automatic as it gets, like, wait for you to get on that type of thing like old and slow and, and whatever and then I never really got that that experience so like I wasn't any good for like say three or four well I, I'd say I probably got good after decent after maybe year three or four and then and then a lot better after that like where I wasn't a liability to people and, and stuff like that and uh um when you told me that um I more used it when I was starting driving because grandpa and dad were still racing at the same time and then we had probably about 60 something horses down the road so um you know i wanted to learn how to drive and then i was just determined so i would i would take out outfits every single morning and then uh like i would i would literally i remember and this it actually kind of hurt me which i'm still um you know working out of these habits but i would hook the four four most mouthy horses i could find in our barns and i hooked you know, one on the right lead and on the left lead and what, and I just went out and I would just try and drive these, these, you know, pegs and just like, just try and figure it out and get like the line sorted. And like, you know, you're going fast. Cause like I, you know, and I had runway and I still have run. I mean, last year I ran around the track backwards during a race, you know, at, at Grand Prairie. So I'm still, still in having runaways and, and trying to deal with these tough horses and, and find my way. But like, were you kind of in the same essence? Like, like you just, I don't know. It just seems like if you kind of get baptized by fire, especially if you're uh, like you or I, where you know you come up in it, and uh, and uh, you know, I think it's safe to say that that uh, to, we, we probably had some uh, natural knack for it. So, like, it almost like for me, like that, I I would take that approach now again and again and again. Is just is just drive as many um um tough horses and bad horses and horses that don't move and horses that that won't stop moving and and all kinds of stuff just just to learn like did you did you kind of do the same thing or or like like what did you really learn um the most when you were learning to drive well i never put four horses together that i knew weren't going to work on purpose to work on my craft i know that basically i just drove what i had like i never had okay. a pile of horses and i just I drove what I had, and if they were great, good, and if they weren't, then it, it was what it was. But I also drove a lot of other horses my first few years because I was always so short of horsepower. Like, at those times, I was just trying to get down the road, you know, like forget about putting together this dream team that's going to go and compete against Rick Fraser, 
Kelly Sutherland and Buddy Bensmiller. I was just trying to get down the road, like, resource-wise. So yeah. I, I was usually short on horses, and I would, you know, borrow one here or one there from guys that said this horse needs a blow and, you know, he could go. And I would just try to put outfits together sometimes to spell off my my good ones just to give them a rest. Whatever. Like, every year is different, but I never – it's just whatever came to me is – the hand I dealt, I got dealt is the hand that I played. It just, I haven't had it super easy, but it hasn't been a struggle either. Like, I'm really blessed that I uh, I had a dad around, that if I wasn't a pinch, you know, it might not be the best horse, but it was one that you could rely on. You know, some of these guys are going to have to go out and open their checkbook if things get, get tight, right? I didn't mm-hmm. have the means to do that, but I could fall back on somebody like Rick or uh, – Mike, or even I borrowed the odd horse off of your grandfather back in the day, but I actually got one of the better horses I ever owned off your grandfather, a horse named Candy, but it was a similar situation. It was, I needed some horses, and he had two young horses with talent that he wanted to be used, and so when you're when you're getting going, you just, it's, it's such a roll of the dice, and every day's different, and one day you're quitting because you can't make it work, and the next, it's the greatest sport ever, and you're going to yeah. go carry on fire, and you never know, but that's part of the excitement is you never know what you're going to get with these horses, and it's such a challenge, and that's why there's only 36 guys doing it on our tour. It's, it's very, very hard to, to get up there, and most of us never get that to that spot there's not a lot of people that can call themselves world champions you know there's not if you look at the number of people that have drove and the number of people that have won it it's pretty staggering percentage so but that's that's part of the lure right yeah no you're you're hitting it right on the head like you know like you were saying earlier we're traveling show to show we're packing all these horses we're kind of like carnies with horses you know what i mean with with these like this addiction for chuck wagon racing and speed like it's and then and then especially when you're starting out i'm the same way as you i got i got family in it and i got people i could fall back on and i have no money to to (laughs) go out and buy horses any horse i've ever bought um, was either on the track for like a thousand or two thousand dollars, or I outrode for a year or two to pay off, uh, you know, the the bill on the horse from Dad or or uh, Mitch or Kirk or or whoever. So um, I totally uh, totally uh, empathize with you there. But um, more more to like kind of what I was asking earlier, like how much did your outriding? Um, okay, well I'll preface it this way. Grandpa always told me when I first started, um, I was opposite to you. I would, I always wanted to be a wagon driver. I never, never had any interest in outriding. Like I, I just didn't care about it. I didn't want to do it. I, I still don't. Honestly, the last couple of years now, I, I, I want to do it more than ever, um, just because it's coming easy and I, and I've really grown to, to love the sport and love that part of it. And, and like you said, kind of roll with the punches and, and, uh, and I, I like, I enjoy it a lot more now, but I never really wanted to do it. But what Grandpa told me was that anybody who was ever most anyways, is, is actually I said it, but, but guys that were decent or, or one or that were champions in the sport, like if you go down the list, were outriders or they started as outriders, like starting with my grandpa or, or even you or, or, or uh, your dad or, um, Ricky Fraser, or like, you know, a, a lot of these guys outrode uh, before. So um, my question is, is how did that um, outriding translate like into your driving? Like, did you, 
um, like for me, I, I particularly paid attention more to, um, honestly, I paid attention to what you were doing when you were out riding and I would watch things like that, or I'd watch how the race was playing out or, or, um, and, and now as I get older, like even things that like when I'm, when I was breaking an out riding horse, I, I took a lot of those things, um, and translate them now when I'm breaking a wagon horse. So like, were you, did you get a lot out of their experiences out riding and then, and then into the wagon box? Yes, big time. Well, first of all, Anytime you're working with or around horses, you're going to improve. No matter what discipline you're into, when you're constantly around it and you're working with them, you're, you're, you're trending upwards. And when I was younger, I showed a lot. We, we had some really, really uh, high-level quarter horses, and okay. we, would, we, we had a lot of success <clears throat> at provincials and whatnot. You know, I'm talking reigning, Western pleasure, equitation stuff like that and that helped me with my outriding uh and the outriding yeah it helped me with your driving and one thing about outriding is i'm gonna be like i've been in over five thousand races just outriding yeah you know so that's that's a lot of experience you look at these online poker players they're all phenoms now at 21 whereas the doyle brunson it took him Till he was 70 to be the, the studies known as because it was all live games. Like now these guys are playing thousands of hands, you know, because yeah. you're exposed to it. And when you're exposed to that many races as an outrider, naturally you're going to, you're going to learn how to win races. Like you're going to know how races are going to develop before the, before it's even happening because you've seen this movie played before thousands of times. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, some guys, when they get good at outriding, they that that's when they start to digest it because it's slowing down for them. So they it can literally turn into just like a, a gentle, soft ride around the track, and yeah. you can really watch the drivers and and pay attention to how these races are developing. And I, I got to the point where I was when I was outriding, I was doing too much of that. Like I would be watching the drivers while I was getting on my horse almost because I was kind of checked out from outriding and I was really intrigued by what all these other drivers were doing and how they were doing it and i wanted to learn that craft i was at that stage and 100 percent. and anytime that you're around the animal in the arena or in the pen or in the barn i think that you're growing and i'm sure you've heard the saying you get better every time you step on the ice as a hockey player i think the same applies to just about everything and i was fortunate that i got to ride in a pile of heat uh, as soon as your grandfather started riding me when I was about 17, once he rode me, then I got a lot of rides after that. Once he was, he gave me my shot. Everybody else was willing to ride me because he was, he was the superior driver at that time. And if he was going to give me a shot, then, you know, it was, the, the rides just started to come to me after, after Kelly. So I was very fortunate to get your grandfather's ride. It kind of, you know, it kind of speed bumped me up a couple of years, I would say. Yeah, you kind of see that 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 whole uh, thing playing out again and again. And then the worst is if, like, I've seen a couple of kids that come through that the dads were driving, but their dads wouldn't um, outride them. And then, so more or less, they're young kids. And then even if their dad's not going to ride them, who else is going to ride them? So I definitely, like, guys are watching. It's a competitive sport. Guys are paying attention. Sure. And if you can get your hands on a young outrider and then get his loyalty early on, like, that, that's, a, that's a strategy for sure. Because guys are thinking, you know, long-term, 10, 5, 10 years down the road. Um, one of the other things specifically is when you were outriding, I remember 
Well, I started with, it was in Rocky Mountain House, and I was riding for Mitch and Kirk, and I don't know what this would have been, year three or four. I still wasn't very good by them, so I didn't know this. And uh, I must have come out. I was riding a horse I actually now own. His name's Crew Leader. He won, like, the BC Derby or something like that. Like, he more wheels than any horse I've ever had in my life or ridden. Um, but he'll give it to you, like, one out of three trips. Like, just kind of a, you know, like, not not a huge heart on him. He's, he's um, uh, inconsistent, doesn't pay attention. He's, he's just kind of the type of horse he is. But... Anyways, I come out late on him. He's always brutal in the barrels. But I, I could always make up quite a bit of track on him. And at this point, I was mad. I come out late, and, you know, end of the year in Rocky Mountain House and, and uh, miss my jump or just something stupid, right? And, and obviously my fault. It's always your fault. It's, it's very, very rarely the horses. Um, but, you know, I come out late, and I, and I come around. I'm trying to catch Mitch and Kirk because I can't take any more penalties. I'm kind of at my quota by the end of the year, you know what I mean? And, Check uh, right there to put away if you have another mistake. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, like they, you with those guys, I make you a deal, right? You take this many penalties and you're, no bonus or like you kind of, because they were a call, right? So, and I was out riding horses off and, and trying to pay for shit and whatever. But um, anyway, so I pulled my whip and I'm, and I've had struggled with this horse all year. He's the only horse I took penalties on that year. And, uh, you know, I pull out my whip and I'm whipping him and whipping him and whipping him and trying to get him to, to grab that gear because, you know, I know the horse and, and that's just kind of how he is. And, uh, you know, obviously I didn't catch and I, and I came late and I, you know, clearly made a fool of myself because you come over after and, and started talking to me. And it was only about like a 30 minute or minute conversation. But, you know, you said, one, don't whip um, that way. Like you said, when, when you're watching um like a jockey whip or something you're you're watching like the way that the jockey matches the horse's stride with the contact when he's you know hitting the horse and he's not taking the horse off balance and then um you know things like that and then you know I started watching you and half the time you wouldn't even carry a whip and then I asked you why a little bit later maybe the next season why you didn't carry a whip and you told me if I remember correctly that you figured you could get more or that you you know were jumping out of a wagon box and weren't carrying one that probably had something to do with it too but you know you could get more out of a horse just trying to you know ride him better and, and stretch out his neck and that type of thing um than like just just uh you know beating on a horse or or scaring him with a noisemaker whip or or whatever um like you know I, I i tried to watch that that type of stuff and another one was that um whenever you turned on a horse or you know in an outriding situation especially when you were running you wouldn't just pull on his line uh, from the side of his neck like most people do. You would stretch your hand down the line and then almost like um, just kind of ease the horse, like like pull from the side of his mouth almost, like so it wasn't so hard on him. And like you know, I I picked those things up and uh, uh, you know from you. So and I, and I used it in and I used that type of stuff in, in my driving too. Like where did you learn that type of stuff? Was it just again repetition or or did you have someone who kind of um taught you or did you just pick it up or or what was it we just we rode so much when we were younger like i was saying when we were i was showing pretty competitively at like eight nine years old at a provincial level and i honestly think that the the, the showing of the horses the doing the gym cannas you really get a sense for their mouths and just you know weight distribution where you're putting your weight when when you're asking him to go this way, that way, or straight, or back, whichever. And you learn how to ride. And the whip thing, 
99% of the outriders, including myself, don't know how to ride with one very well. And it's not a knock on the outriders. It's not something that's practiced. You look yeah. at these jockeys, okay, when they go to, they'll go to three-year apprenticeships to be a jockey if they're from the Dominican or Panama or wherever, Barbados, wherever these guys are coming from. They, they're learning on dummy horses, how to ride, keep the horse in stride, and use the whip. And that's not something that's focused on in right. the WPCA. It's, it's about getting on. Everybody goes to the infield, and, and you got to get on fast, which you do, and you got to get out clean. And then, you know, now with the way the line is, I, I know they moved it back. you got to forgive me. I didn't outride last year. I don't even know what, it, what it's at. I know it's not at 150 feet. It's further, but... 200 now. Yeah, if you can't make 200 feet, like the whip is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I would show him. I would use it to show the horse, but I've never really got a lot out of it. And I think that most of the time, like I said, when you're not a good enough rider to ride and use it and keep the horse in stride and keep your your posture and your balance centered, where you're not putting the horse off stride, because that's where the injuries will come in, and that's where you're slowing down because you're not moving in a rhythm with the animal. I just thought, I think as like when the whip talk came out of maybe getting rid of it, I honestly could have cared less if they kept it or they didn't because of what I just told you. I think if it's good for showing the horse, and I you will feel a gear when you show it to them, but I just don't think, I think that we're a victim of not ever practicing or being taught when we're when we're growing up and we're getting sanctioned and we're breaking out or what what have you of how to ride properly with it and we don't realize that because most of us aren't exposed to the racetrack world where you watch a high class jockey like Irad Ortiz he could you know spin it around his head before you know it it's in his other hand and he's using it more so to keep the horse in a straight line because they're running a mile and sixteenth where the horses are starting to you know swagger right to left and it's used almost as a steering wheel as much as encouragement so that's where i stood with that um but right. as far as just a lot of it's instinctual when you're riding when you're when you're getting on and a lot of guys are looking for their stirrups first which is the no-no like get, get your lines my dad was big on get on worry about your lines and where you're headed before you because guys always want control first and they want to feel secure so they look for their stirrups and in the meantime they haven't been steering their horse yeah so a lot of that just comes with practice though it's just it's a matter of repetition and it's instinct but i think the guys that grew up riding are comfortable on the horse they're gonna they're gonna learn they're gonna learn those those things at a much more rapid rate than the one that the guy that wasn't exposed to that growing up but it's not to say that somebody can't walk in and, and get good at it because it's happened before. That that was always one of my, it still is one of my pet peeves. Like when you watch kind of a new outrider, it's not their fault. Cause like you said, it's natural to want your stirrups as soon as you get on the horse, but it just hated, hated, hated watching guys, you know, search for their stirrups and, and you like swim and they're you have the horse's mouth in the air. Cause they're bending down trying to, you know, uh, um, grab the stirrups. And I just hated watching that. Um, the other thing, what about, uh, like, the way you drive, like, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of the same way that, that, that you do it. Like, you know, I, I'm trying to watch all these guys and, and figure out these styles of driving and then trying to try some out in the morning and, and see what's working for me. And, and I'm still changing, still developing and stuff. Um, the way you drive, 
like it seems like you just you, you're you're very very kind on their mouths. I know you kind of alluded to that um, when you're saying you you learned that from your showing background and stuff like that. But um, the other guy that that drove like that, well, 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 two things. One of the guys that drove like that was Huey Sinclair. And then if you ask Huey, um, he said that. Uh, how did he put it? He said. How do you get that much? Somebody asked him, "How do you get that much charge out of the horse?" He just, "Well, it's simple. I just don't touch their mouths." You know what I mean? So that's kind of it seemed like his approach to it. Now I haven't asked you that much uh, personally, but that was what I was told. And the other thing was, is I remember it was at the stampede again. Kind of long-winded question, but um, and and someone was talking to you about uh, your driving in gloves or something because it was raining and you had a bunch of bunch of slack, which you still do to this day, like on your wheelers and stuff. Um, like going to the top barrels and, and whatnot. And, and uh, somebody asked you why you did that. And you said, it's just so much easier, um, you know, driving with two lines instead of four. And that's something that came from, uh, you know, Ralph, your grandpa, because that's what my grandpa taught me was just to drive two horses instead of four, like leave as much slack as you can to the wheelers and uh, worry about steering your lead team. And, and uh, one of two things, I think that does is you don't fight the horses too much. You let them roll and you, you kind of, um, you know, gain some charge that way without, without, you know, impeding their, their mouths or, or pulling on them or touching their faces and stuff. And then the other thing is it makes it easier to drive. So like, did you um, develop that style the same way that, that I did like from those guys and, and learning that or, or was it kind of what you said earlier um, that you just figured out what worked for you the best? Well, I don't even know if that's what how it's supposed to be done. And like I said, I don't have the answers by no means. You just try to do what you think is right for you and your team of horses. And every every barn's going to be different. But as far as like the slack goes, a lot of that is comes back down to again Jim Canna and showing. And we were on quarter horses, so it's a little bit different because a thoroughbred will always run into the bit a little bit. But it was a habit that I developed as a kid. Because less is always more, you know, when you're ripping Gymkhana, if you're running poles or, or stakes or flags or whatever. Because mm-hmm. the more tension you put on a quarter horse's mouth, they don't run into the bit the same way as a thoroughbred. So when I started to drive, my first instinct was to give them as much mouth as good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't know if that's right or wrong. A lot of guys will say, you know, Sometimes they run harder when you have line on them, and sometimes they do, and sometimes too much line is no good. And I think there's a happy medium, to be honest. I think that I, I watched a lot of pictures and videos of Ralph, and he would always have a little bit more line on his leaders than his wheelers. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just think it depends on what you're driving. I'm not so sure, certain that there is only one way to drive. I think that every outfit will, will pose you know, a different look and maybe a, a different way of going. So it's tough. I, I like to have a little bit of slack in my wheelers when the horn goes and knowing that, you know, it, they can take it if they want it. And yeah. Yeah, I like I like to focus on my, my lead team when I'm going to the top barrel. And in particular, probably the left leader is the horse that I would drive the most. If, you're, if your left leader is really working, you'll always be able to, you'll always be able to get around a lot easier opposed to if your right leader's working and your lefty isn't. If, you, if your right leader's trying to work and he's dragging the, the lefty, it's, it's so much harder to make a barrel turn. Your left leader, at least you can guide him off that top 
and then kind of pull the trigger when you when you want to. But again, it's different strokes for different folks. I, I'm sure that if you ask Glass or, or Vince Miller, like look at how Jason and Tom drive. It's completely different from everybody. It's whatever you're raised on and whatever's working for you. I know I've changed a little bit in the last little bit, and I'm still learning, still growing, yeah. still trying to improve. And I'm hoping that we we'll improve as a team this year, myself included. A lot of these shows that got away from our team was because of me, just inconsistency and, and not keeping outfits together long enough, giving them an opportunity to gel, probably too much switching. You're always, you want to fix things right now, you know, or, and that's yeah. just human nature. Uh, and then you look at Saskatoon, went back to the well on the outfit that works absolutely horrendous. And it paid off because you gave them a second chance and they got out there right away. It's like when you have a, a bad shift in hockey and your coach throws you out there, like, let's correct that mistake. Sometimes that can be really, you know, to your advantage. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you, like, it's, it's, it's funny how similar, like, I think maybe, maybe it's our minds work the same, but I'm the same way, like, and, and it's horrible uh, that, like, I want to fix things right away, so I'll switch the outfits or I'll switch the horses or, or something like that. And then, you know, I wonder why nothing's going right. And it's been um, like I'm notorious for, for coming in hot the last half of the season because finally I've switched things around enough to try every horse in in, uh, in the barn and, and, you know, on this one outfit trying to fix the outfit or whatever. And then finally it all, it all uh, you know, comes down. But I don't know if that's like – I don't know if that's also like maybe you feel the same way, like part of the pressure – like of being like, you know, you're a vegan and, and I'm a Southerland and, and uh, there's, you know, names and there's heritage to that. And, and we grew up in it and we grew up around tough guys. And, and um, I don't know, like, I'm just kind of thinking this on the spot, but maybe that's something like of, of the, like, you know, subconsciously that that's, that's, I'm just trying to appease uh, to the, you know, um, uh, aspirations uh, too much or something. Like, did, did you ever feel any pressure like that you had to, had to do this or, or had to, um, win or, or anything like that, like coming up or now? Not really as a driver. I think I felt quite a bit as an outrider because you're, this is the first time you've been out there in the infield and then, you, you know, the horn's going to blow and you're part of a wagon race, right? And that's right. Once that starts to set in, you don't know if you're capable of doing it or not. Mind you, you're young. We're all pretty young when we got going. Uh, I felt pretty nervous getting into outriding because I really it was something that I always wanted. And then when I started practicing, I realized, and like I said earlier, it didn't always go so well for me. I thought this isn't going to be easy. And maybe this isn't for me. You start getting second, you know, you start second guessing yourself or getting these negative thoughts in your head. And until you kind of get on a run of clean trips and you start riding for some faster wagons and get your confidence up. I think that, the nerves were always there until one day you feel pretty confident out there. And, and as far as driving goes, I didn't really, I didn't really feel the pressure. And if there was any pressure, it would have just been on myself to make Calgary and start getting some funds coming in so that I can reinvest and start trying to go somewhere with this, because without making it to Calgary, you're kind of just treading water. You're not swimming anywhere. Right. Cause you can't, yeah. You can't keep up with the Joneses if you don't have the resources to put back into your team. So the first year driving when you back when you had to qualify, it's a little bit different now with the invitation system. But 
having to qualify. I qualified for Calgary on the very last day of uh, running my first I year. remember that, yep. The so 26th spot. The, the last spot, whichever it was. I honestly don't even remember how many they took that year. I just know I was the last day, and that was the last uh, the run that got me in. But I was on the outside looking in for 99% of the summer. So there's there's a lot more pressure on those guys I think then the guys that are kind of doing well, like a guy like your old man that was always in uh, second last heat, you know, things are going good. You you know, you've always got an outfit to fall back on. That's going to crack your points that you're yeah. confident in. And, and those guys that are on the bubble that make or break uh, Calgary, like, and they won't have a lot of financial backing. I know my dad was someone that fell into that category. There's a lot of pressure there. Like he made it the last night of running in red deer one year and if he didn't get in, he was quitting for sure. And yeah. I think a lot of guys have, have, you know, got a similar story. And that's the real pressure when it's like, if this doesn't go well, I might not be doing this anymore. But outside yeah. of that, uh, I've been lucky to compete in a couple big heats, a couple Calgary's uh, as a driver. I didn't really feel, I don't really feel the pressure that way. And I think most would agree. It's more of just like being ready. At that point, you've already... I don't want to say you've made it because like nobody wants to get that far and lose, but you, you're coming back next year. You, you've made some money. You've probably got a good rapport with your sponsor at that point. Uh, it's the guys that were fighting to make Calgary. And if it didn't go well, you, you had some tough decisions to make. That's real. That's where the pressure's at. That's, that's a, that's a hundred percent where I've been at the last few years. It's like, man, I haven't, I was in the exact same position except, I lost Calgary, or or this was still now when it was invitation, but um, Curtis Morin got an invite, and I didn't, and I was one point behind him or behind Troy Flatt or something. Like, I was one point out, and it was on the very last day, and, you know, I had an outriding penalty or a wagon pedal or something like that, so it was more or less the same. But I never, like, I don't know if I ever so much felt pressure as, like, when the horn goes or anything, but, like, um, you know, like, for me, like, my goal in the sport was always to win uh, one more world, one more Calgary than my grandpa, you know, like, you know, people laugh or whatever. Um, but like, if you didn't aim too high, you aim too low, you know what I mean? So um, like, that was always like my goal and, and my aspirations in the sport to, you know, kind of um, win and dominate like my grandpa did. Like, do you have those same, um, you know, goals or, or, or you just kind of, taking it maybe if you win one calgary then you worry about the next one or or like how do you go about it or how do you think about it to be honest this is probably the first year i made any like quote unquote goals like i said earlier for so many years i was literally just trying to get down the road and yeah. the goal was always to uh make calgary uh, put an outfit together that was tough, that you could do some damage at Calgary, maybe get lucky, sneak in the semis or something like that, and then go from there. But it was always let's 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 get these horses peaking for Calgary, try to have a strong Calgary where we we make some money, we get a good sponsor for next year, and then we'll have a strong second half because we've hopefully figured things out from that point. But the the real big goals like. Uh, winning a tour championship or a world championship, uh, they just seem so far. I, I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer right now, um, 
they just seem so far away from me from a realistic standpoint that I never really laid those on me. I thought if I can just, if I keep, if I always have one nice horse or two nice horses, I have something to build around and I can yeah. keep growing and eventually we'll piece it all together. But most years I didn't even have a, know who was out riding for me until a couple of days before the show. I mean, I would take care of my own shoe and I would try to get as many animals in the barn that I could afford. And then a lot of the breaking would get done like on the road because the first year horses had to go. So even if they weren't particularly uh, ready, uh, instead of taking them down the road and, and keep driving them in the mornings until they're, you know, foolproof or, or you're comfortable with them, they just went because it was what I had. So to say you were going to go and outrun Jerry Bremner, Kelly, and, uh, Rick, whoever you want to call, the guys that were coming in with three outfits ready to go and then the new ones are getting exposed to the uh, the scenery in the infield and the barrel pattern in the mornings, like how it should go, like you're never, it just seems so unrealistic to me. So I just said, I'm just going to keep chipping away bit by bit. And it was, it was one baby step at a time. And I, I honestly can say up until probably Pinocchio Stampede this year, I never really thought we were where we needed to be or where we, we were close. But I think that now we can start making some goals. We've got a, a strong herd. We've got some depth now. We've got our numbers up. We've got two call outriders coming back. I've got an experienced crew signed up to come down the road. Like all that stuff adds up. And even things like your crew and, and your outriders, and you don't have that in line. It takes a lot of energy out of you to, to worry about that when, when you could be worrying about the four horses in front of you or your, your third outfit that you got to have ready in case, you know, the bell rings and you, they need to step in. Right. So yeah. I'm really excited about this year because it's the first year that I can honestly say that I feel like these goals that are, that are big goals are even attainable because I never really looked at it like that in the past. I was just trying to get down the road and just piece things together and just try to keep growing. Right. Now, Champ, you're one of the guys who uh, has built a good relationship with their sponsors, and you have Nordic on your uh, on your wagon. How did that come to be? Well, I started working for Nordic as one of their Calgary reps last winter, and I've known uh, the owner who's actually related to Dayton. He's a really good guy and been a fan of wagon racing and good guy to work for and he just just um i don't think you get a whole bunch uh, i don't know what you get out of it without less but obviously the fans can read it um i think he more or less just did it as a nice gesture to me and we had a good winter with work and it was a way of giving back and it's just a nice another area of revenue um we should have been tapping into that years ago I uh, I had a Troyer sticker on my box for five grand. I think I was the first guy to do it, and I remember the president. I don't re- I won't say his name. Uh, he made me take it off, and I I just couldn't believe we would be opposed to this. And I thought right. it was a way to get back to the association. If they took a commission off of it, it was good to put in you know more money in the association's pockets, and it was another revenue stream for the drivers. And I was just flabbergasted back then that you know someone would oppose that and I'm glad now that 
we're in a place where more guys are doing it. And it's, it's also like a gateway for other sponsors, you know, guys that don't want to spend 15 grand on a tarp at Pinocchio, but want, want to see their name at the Pinocchio Stampede. They have yeah, time, but... but there you go. And then you get a versatile out of it. Like you look yeah. at, uh, Ben Smiller, his, his major sponsor, who's probably one of the strongest sponsors on the tour, he, he acquired him through the, the Wagon Box sponsorship. So it can be a gateway for the sponsor to expose themselves to the, to the scene and the lifestyle of wagon racing and see if they like it or don't, if it suits their company, uh, at a fraction of the cost of what it would be to get a tarp to find out about it. Well, and it's a, it's a, it's another way, like, you know, I, you know, I talked to Craig who, who owns Nordic and, and, uh, like, you know, it's, a, I think it's another way for these guys to, to, to get advertising out there. I really do believe that because, um, it may not be talked about, um, you know, by Les or the announcer, but, uh, you know, it is in every single picture that's taken. It's in every single video. Now we're going to be on, you know, Flow Rodeo and, and all these other, you know, big platforms that have huge viewership and stuff like that. And, and, uh, you know, um nascar i don't know uh you know who is so-and-so sponsor is because they told me i know who their sponsor is because when i watched the car go by it said on the side of the uh <laughs> it said on the side of the car in, in big lettering you know what i mean so that's i, I think no, that's a good point like i don't know i just I, I thought it was and and then plus like right now it's, it's at a bargain um to guys i think uh it's probably underpriced because i don't know what the what the um, you know, eyes you would get on, say, a, a one season with how many um, people be looking at your wagon and, and then when you take TV into account or Flow Rodeo and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm the same way. I don't know why we didn't think of it earlier. Like, you're struggling to get down the road, like, especially for guys that aren't in Calgary and stuff like that. And then, and then we're not going to sell, like, the giant piece of real estate that's just below the tarp on the wagon. You know what I mean? So it makes yeah, perfect sense. I told Calgary they should they should do it. They should sell the wagon boxes at the tarp auction. Sell right. Them both. Because there's a lot of money that leaves that room. You know, there's so many people that bring forty to fifty grand to buy a wagon, and they don't get one, and they want to be a part of the Calgary Stampede for whatever reason. They don't want to sponsor a High River or a Strathmore, and that money leaves the room, and it's yeah. gone. And, and I think that you could you could take that money and put it on a wagon box. I think there's I think there's room for it. I think it would go over well. Uh, I think they're worried it takes away from the tarp sponsorship. But with the tarp sponsorship, you get the announcer and you get your you know whatever you know, whatever slang comes with your with your company or your slogan or whatever. You're gonna get that out there. But I, I would like to see Calgary pick it up. I just I'm all for the wagon designs, but I still think you can have a wagon, cool wagon design, and also advertise on it at the same time. Well, like, or maybe more of like a logo, like like Grandpa always had the the hat and the feather, or whatever. Dad always had the, but Dad was too big, like it's a star and and the the shooting star or whatever. But um, I'm just trying to think uh, who else had these. You know, Rick Fraser always had those, uh, um, you know, swirls and stuff like that, or. Or and if he had a box sponsor, he would just move them back or make them smaller. So I think you can always get by with like something that that represents your team as well. You know, whether it be a number or whether it be your logo or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. Um, as far as as far as it taking away from the tarp sponsor, well, I'm sure there's ways that we could 
um, work around it. You know what I mean? Like there, you know, maybe if a guy doesn't want anybody else on the, on the, um, box and he could buy the, the rights to the box too, for say a, a discount or a lesser price than somebody who was just putting their brand new or, or a different company on the box. So, you know, I, I obviously, I, I just think there'd be maybe ways around that, that type of thing. Oh, for sure there is. Forever there was never a sponsor for the Outriders. And when we got that rolling with Ferrets, we had some really big years in there. There was some years where all the Cowboys were getting hurt and our benevolent fund was literally at zero where Ferris came in and just repumped it back up to what, what it was to begin with. And we're talking $40,000, $50,000. And, and, I mean, Outriders never had sponsors for... I don't know, years. so 100, 100 years. Yeah. So it can be done, and I mean, I hope that's where it goes because it's it's a big stream of money that we're missing out on, and I think it's just something that we've got to make more effort to tap into. Um, switching gears kind of here a little bit, uh, what about, like, you seem as a guy that might wheel and deal a little bit, like, especially with horses. Like, we kind of crossed on it earlier, and we're we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but... Um, did you, do you ever like, you know, trade horses, like say you'll trade three for one or, or something to another guy, or you'll trade, say out riding and some cash for one horse and, or throw another horse in the deal or something like that. Like what were some of the, the craziest, you know, uh, deals or pickups that you had ones that, that, that say, uh, worked out real well, <laughs> ones that kind of backfired or whatever, like you got any, uh, uh, good stories about that? Yeah, I think everybody's got a good one and a bad one. Yeah, yeah. So don't, everybody's got a few, and I'm sure that some are good and some are bad, and I'm I'm no different. But uh, I outrode one summer for Kirk, and he had a horse that I used to hold for Tim Harrelson that was a really nice horse, but he was he kind of came with some baggage. He was a little crazy. And uh, he had to be treated for ulcers. He tra- gets stressed out, and it would really affect his coat and his just his weight and overall look. And I'm not sure if Kirk or Mitch liked him or if they didn't get along with him or what, but I offered to ride a summer for that horse. And I kind of knew he, what he was capable of. And lucky for me, they took the deal, and that horse ended up winning an equine award. And he he was pretty influential p- part of my team there for a few years, and I was pretty lucky to have him. And when he started to back off a little bit on the horn, just a, a hair, I got to move him to uh, a good friend of mine in the CPCA, and I got a lot of value back for him, which I got to reinvest all over again. So that flick was a deal that, that worked out for sure. I had a lot of good luck this past summer. I uh, bought four horses off uh, Kenny Walters, John Walters' brother. Yeah. Kenny was going to race, and some things popped up and he elected not to. And I got a few broke horses for pretty cheap. And when I bought them, I was just buying them to buy my, my top two outfits some time off. So I gave my good horses most of Medicine Hat and High River completely off. And I, I drove a few of my uh, spares, if you want to call them that, and a few of Mike's spares. And then I drove these new ones that I bought off of uh, Kenny. And I, didn't, I wasn't super crazy about them, but they were buying me a little bit of time. But I ended up uh, trading the one wheeler to my dad for two broke outriding horses that really kind of secured our outriding pen going into Pinocchio Calgary. And I traded the right leader 
to my dad for a new horse that was a, a really flighty left leader. And he was really, really crazy for a while. That bubble? No, his name is Big Head Red. He was he's a newer horse. Okay. But he had a he was showing talent. Like you know when a horse is showing initiative, like he wants to work, he just doesn't know exactly what what's going on. Like he doesn't know his way around the infield. He's just he's but kind he's of hundred miles an hour. Yeah, but he's got that in him, right? And you can yeah. kinda of harness that. And I'll never forget when you feed morning oats in Calgary, it's really peaceful for a place that's got a lot of noise and hustle and bustle in the morning when you feed oats it's just like the horses and it's very very serene and peaceful and i never forget i went in there the morning of uh day one and i'd never had this horse in a box stall right i've never owned him and took him to calgary and he was doing donuts in his box stall like a raining horse if you've ever seen a rainer spin shitters like as fast as you possibly could he was doing 360s in his box stall, and this is at 6 a.m., so I went, yeah. holy smokes. Like, so I got a buddy in there with him and got him calmed down, and he's turned out to be really, really good. He's kind of come back to earth a little bit, but he's still got his tenacity, and I ended yeah. up using him in the dash of Dawson Creek, and I don't, I don't win Dawson without him, and I think he's going to be exceptional next year because he, he looks like a million dollars now. He's putting his weight on. I think he just needed to get accustomed to the whole, the whole that is wagon racing, the travel, the moving, the other horses in the pen, the, you know, the jingling of the harness. It was, some horses take to it right away. Some need some time, and some don't ever get it. And he's the horse that just needed a little bit of time. So that was a deal that I'm really happy about, and I think that he's going to play a big, a really big part of our of our team next year. Yeah, those uh, I got a lot of those like real, real high strung like for for ultras. What this is kind of a side note uh, as far as ultras go. They say ninety percent of racehorses uh, have ulcers, but I got so many high strung ones that I I treat almost over half my barn for ulcers. But that's kind of the type of horse that that like I'm leaning towards is like these real um, flighty ones and, and nervous horses, ones that that are pacing and stuff like that. And, and you're hundred percent right. Like it might take like maybe a couple of years or a few years before like the horse finally, you know, settles down and stuff like that. But it's almost like it's, you're almost like uh, uh, buying low and then, and then selling high. Like you can, you can get these other horses from these guys that, that don't like those types. Like I'm the same way with Kirk and Mitch or, or even my dad at some point or, or whatever um, that, that, that aren't in love with these horses or, or maybe just aren't prepared to spend the time Um you know, with them that, that it's going to take for that horse to settle down. And then all of a sudden that one horse that, that uh, really, really turned the corner this year for me was a horse named Kodiak, which I've talked about on here a few times. He's uh he was in the left wheel. Um, then I had him on the right lead for a year, um, raced him a couple times there, but mostly just worked in the mornings with him. And uh, he's always, he's kind of a smaller horse, always going to be a leader, always going to be a leader. He's very athletic. Uh, he's, he's dark. He's, he's easy to drive up there. He's, he's soft. He knows where he's going, but he's just, so high strung and then this year I, I needed to fill a hole so I put him on the right wheel and just like hello like he just all of a sudden you know turned the corner and and uh, he just starts every time jams right up into that pocket he's easy to drive don't have to touch his mouth like doesn't you know false start he just he's just he's just a really 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 nice horse and it's about now four years in the making but he's one now that I can 
finally confident say confidently say okay you know i got four horses or four years in this horse you know i know what he's gonna do i know what he's all about like i you know it's just it's just it's it's rewarding almost when you know that finally pays off and sometimes they just need a change of scenery like sometimes they honestly just need a different look whatever is working in um driver x's program is just not clicking for that horse and i've seen a lot where guys take horses from other guys and improve them and you think he's this rock star horseman and then he has a horse that he's not getting along with and he ships him off to another driver and then that driver improves him so sometimes i think the horse just just needs a different look and i mean i sold two racehorses to jason glass and strathmore uh, one of which i had spent some time on one i hadn't and I wasn't getting along with that horse and Jason might turn him into something. And I took all that money he gave me and I had it for about two weeks. And then I gave it all back to him and I bought that false face, white eyed Wheeler and that he had, he's, he's only drove him seven times in two years. Cause same thing. He's, he, he'll kick the hand or he'll kick over the pole and he's just a, he's a high energy and he's got some nerves to him and he's got to come back down to earth a little bit and, Hopefully we can harness that, and maybe we will, maybe we won't. But sometimes they just need a different look and a change of scenery. But I think it's good to focus on those types of horses if you have a low budget, the ones that, you know, come with a little bit of baggage but have a high ceiling. Because yeah. the, ones that, the ones that got it aren't for sale. You know, they're rarely, <laughs> rarely for sale. I sold one this year to uh, just a couple months ago to uh, a driver in the CPCA. My dad thought I was crazy, but um, my five-year-old right leader, I shipped him off to uh, a driver in the Canadian circuit. But going back to the business side of things, you got to make it all work, right? So the, the return that I got, it, it took care of all my way. That made sense. <laughs> it financed an entire trip to the States of horse buying. Yeah. And then there was a little bit left over. So you got to, got to make some tough decisions if i could keep them all i would but that's that's where we're at right now and i'm sure you can relate to that you're gonna have to make some hard choices and you got to do what's best for for your outfit as a whole whether you're really attached to the horse and you know he's good and you know what you got and he's probably improving you got to look at the big picture sometimes and and make some tough decisions i'm i'm there with you but um, I'm such a like pack rat mentality. Like I, I, I just want to keep every single horse. Like I just want to keep gathering and gathering and, and I can all the time. Like I just sold um, five of them uh, now as a package deal uh, in the fall. And then I'm going to try and deal some more in the spring. I'm getting to the point where like I got, you know, 30 head of horses and for my <laughs> small operation, it's, it's, you know, uh, me and usually one other person going down the road. So it's, it's, it's way too much going on, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I totally know what you mean about the, you got to make the, the business side of it make, uh, make sense because there's not a lot of money in the game. And then it, some of these guys can, you know, lo and behold they get some sponsorship money behind them and, and now they want to buy some horses or or maybe they're um you know wealthier guys and then you know chuck wagon racing is kind of their hobby type thing and then they're gonna you know splash the money around and, and uh, they're gonna you know buy some horses from from guys like you and me that that uh are, are 
on the other end of the spectrum that are that are uh, you know more doing this as like a lifestyle and and uh, have been planning to do it for a long time uh, and that type of thing. But um, what about like your favorite horses? Like, give me maybe one or two that like all time that you've come across you know in in your life whether it be out riding horses or, or horses driving horses or or whatever like uh everybody loves a good good horse well my favorite wagon horse of all time by far was candy the horse that i bought off of your grandfather i okay. remember he get, he he let me two horses both were were green i'm not sure if either had been in the race mark might have put him in a race or two i don't think kelly had but he gave me a gray named Dieter, and then he gave me this horse named Candy. And uh, this was my rookie season when I was trying to qualify for Calgary. Yeah. And I got to Strathmore, and I really, really liked Candy. And I thought Dieter was just a horse that was probably going to improve with time, but I, I thought he was just there. So when I yeah. went to ask Kelly if he would sell me the horse I wanted, I <clears throat> your grandfather's probably going to hear this, but... I asked him to buy the gray horse because I know how your grandfather's mind works. So yeah. I asked him what he wanted for the gray, thinking that was my number one priority right. was getting this horse because I thought he was going to make a leader. And he, on the spot, refused to sell that horse to me. And I said, okay, fine, then how much for this horse? Yeah. And he, and he gave me a price, and I was surprised he even gave me a price, but he did. And it was he wanted $20,000, which was a pile of money for me back then, still is. But I yeah. got to Strathmore, and I had $22,000 in my bank account. And hmm. I still got to get to Rocky. I still got to get to Dawson, and I still got to get to Rocky. And I still got to figure out, like, winter feed and all this other crap that comes with, you know, you're getting rolling and you got bills. And I finally was like, I'm all in here if I buy this horse this is the only way I'm going to make Calgary because if this horse keeps going and improving the way he is, Kelly's going to take him back. So I got to make again, some tough decisions. Yeah. So I get my checkbook and I write him a check for 20,000. And you know what he says to me? What's that? He forgot to put GST on that. <laughs> only, only a Southern one day. <laughs> so if I ever wanted to pull the feather out of his hat and poke him in the eyeball with it, it was then because I was yeah. so broke. But I was desperate, but I really believed in the horse, and I was I was nowhere without him because he was kind of starting the whole outfit. Yeah. And so I ripped the check, got a new one, and gave him $21,000. And then I literally had a 1000 bucks, and I got to pay outriders, and so I'm outriding to pay them. And it was such a desperate move, but it turned out to be the right move because it, he really – he, he got me to where I needed to be, which was in Calgary, and then that got me the revenue to start investing real money back into the team, and it was at a time where I really needed that. And then right. making the semis my first year at Calgary, was he had a huge part of that. and He was another horse that just made everyone else better. He, I think we, we overuse the word great. I think there's a lot of really good horses, but the great yeah. ones that are always going to work no matter who they're hooked with and that make the other horses better – a lot of horses look great, and then you take one horse away from that outfit, and they kind of they dial it back quite a bit, and you kind of find out who's who in the zoo and who really makes that outfit tick. And he's probably one of the only horses that I've drove that's like that. I got another one named Nibbles that's been he's been off for a couple of years for for separate freaky incidents, but they're special because 
they're they're just a rare talent that that always gives you everything that they have. And when you get an animal making the other animal that much better, then you're on to something. And the hard part is to try to find four of them like that at the same time. And that's, that's a real challenge. And it's something that few of us have ever done. And most people will never get to do the odd, the odd driver will, will find it. And I've probably only seen a few outfits like that. I remember uh, like breaking and driving that horse and he was high strung too. Like he was more like, like, uh, the old saying goes like three white socks. He was good looking, I thought, but he was he was more so high strung, um, kind of like the nervous type of team, like too. Like he was tough to tough to handle a lot of the time. Yeah, a lot of character. Like usually the good ones have a little bit of character that you they just from a personality standpoint it separates them. Like he always yeah. hung out with uh, with the horse that ran the herd. Like whoever the toughest or the oldest horse was, that was who his buddy was. Like. He, like a kid at recess who could always hang out with the cool crowd or the kingpin or whatever. He was that yeah. horse. If he was at Kelly's barn, he would be hanging out with Reggie because Reggie was the old kingpin there. Yeah. And when he came to mine, he did the exact same thing. He, he had a lot of character and he had a, he was a liver chestnut. So he kind of stood out from, you know, from a physical standpoint, he was a beautiful horse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that. Um, one second here, I just go through my my. Uh... Oh, I was just gonna ask you something, but I. I, um... I have a Maybe question for you. Okay. Is um that outriding horse Chessy still alive? You know what? Uh, where did we put Chessy? Chessy went to. There was some. I was pretty young because I had Chessy as a riding horse for a long time, and then. Um, I don't. I never rode him. He was. I was young. I was too small. No one would go riding with me. And then to jump on like a thoroughbred, I just wasn't really all into it. Had like two bad experiences, and then you know, like they're bucking or whatever. And I'm, you know, whatever it is, under ten or ten years old, and so I got scared or whatever. Um, so, anyways, long story short, some girl always had her eye on him, and I believe um, Dad and Grandpa give Chessie to her. Um, like she always said, if you're ever going to get rid of that horse, uh, make sure you send him my way or whatever. I don't care. Just send him my way. So um, I believe that's where Chessie ended up. Oh, good. If there was an outriding horse that I would like to go out of my way to go and visit, it would be him because he was, I rode him for a lot of years and he was so good. It was just like a, a night off. It was like taking a heat off. You could really relax, enjoy the race. Because he he would do it for you. Everything that you need in an outriding horse, he was he was the best at. He didn't just do it well. He like anybody could have rode him, and he made a lot of outriders look probably better than what they were, and myself included. I love that about a about a good outriding horse. And and yeah, I heard a lot about that horse. I don't I never rode him in a race uh, myself because obviously it was he was kind of a. Um, before my time, but uh, yeah, I hundred percent understand you there. What, what I was going to say earlier is when you said uh, you know you, you try and string four of those horses together, it's impossible to do. But what it seems like, or, or next to impossible, it seems anyways. But it seems like once you once you start stringing those horses together, all of a sudden you can take one off and then you can put another new one in, and then it's like you know iron sharpens iron. Like it just it, it starts you start like manifesting. I've seen it happen with my grandpa and my dad, and, and you start just building all these horses that would otherwise be a little bit better than average into pretty pretty darn good horses just because you're you're hooking them with all these 
really, really nice horses. You know what I mean? So and it, it kind of seems like that's what, that's what Benzner is doing. Uh, he just, you know, took the long route and, uh, and built up his barns. But, but now that things are rolling, it's almost like he's got a monopoly on it, you know? Yeah, and I think once that they get when you once you get your herd to a certain spot, it get, it gets easier to keep the the good talent coming. Because when you right. when you have a lot of nice horses, the the best way to make a nice horse is to put them with a nice horse. I think that's the quickest and best route. Like if somebody says, "What? How do you make a good wagon horse?" It's like put him beside a good wagon horse. That's that's the quickest and easiest way, in my opinion. And when you have that table of of riches. You can constantly keep pulling them, pulling that that new brand of horse through your talent. And when you're trying to break new ones with horses that are average, you don't get as much out of them. Right. And it certainly doesn't happen as quick. I don't think. I think that you can speed up a horse's uh, development, and I think he can get good quicker when he's around nice horses. And that's just natural. That's like anything. Like if, if you're playing hockey and you're going to get better by playing against better competition, being around better competition, playing on a line with good players is going to make you a good player. It, it, it goes beyond the horses, but I think that's crucial. And I think that's why when, once these guys get on top and they've got their program figured out and they've got a table of, of, of wealth and equine power, it's easier to stay on that level as long as you're true to your program and you keep bringing in wave after wave of new ones and i think that's what your grandfather was good at whether he was dominating or not that liner was getting filled up with 20 head and there's strength in numbers there and he he never took a an off season off like he yeah. he was always bringing in wave after wave of new ones looking for that next ralph or next zoomer or bobby and i think that's why he he stayed good for so long as he never took his foot off the pedal and and he bought horses when he needed them. Same same thing uh, you were talking about earlier. Like when you need that, when you needed candy, you bought them. And and I learned that lesson the hard way, because I uh, Mitch and Kirk. I needed the horses. I needed leaders because I never had I've never had any broke leaders. Finally, I got two or three now this year coming from last year. Like you know, both broke. Maybe even I wouldn't even say two or three. Maybe two or one broke, broke leaders that, that I got coming in, uh, from next season. I never had horses. So, um, you know, I needed them and I, and I always text Kirk and Mitch first guys. I, I text uh, when I'm buying horses cause I outride for them and I don't have to pay the cash cause I, I can't, I just, I don't have the cash in my account. I always live living, you know, like you kind of were like by the seat of your pants, paycheck to paycheck, especially when you're on the season. Cause you just, you know, you're in spring training, you're feeding horses and, and whatnot. So anyways, I text these guys and I say, what do you got for sale? I need uh, leaders. What what side? I said, both. They said, okay, I got two. 15000 for left leader and uh, 10000 for the right leader. Or maybe that was reversed. And, you know, if people don't know Kirk and Mitch, they got so many horses half the time, they don't even know who they're selling. So they actually, <laughs> it, it's the truth. <laughs> And they just, you know, because they, they, they wheel and deal, and they're more or less the same. They're looking for these, these special horses that work in their program and stuff like that. So, anyway, so I, I you know, I, I said, okay, to Mitch, and, and as soon as he said that, I, I can't afford that. I can't afford 25000 I can't afford ten or fifteen. You know what I mean? For any of these horses, like, I just, I, I don't have it. Um, and I wasn't really worried or willing to sign my life away for two horses that I'd never seen or watched or anything like that. So, Anyways, the season kind of goes on, and this is only a couple of years ago. 
and uh, you know, I'm finding, trying to find horses. I'm just getting by and I'm making kind of poor runs and then maybe a good one and, and whatever. And I'm, I'm trying these new horses up there and it just wasn't working. And I still, and I didn't really know much. And, um, you know, me and dad, like I'm so bullheaded. So we argue all the time. You know, I love him to death. He's my dad, but when it comes to wagons, I, I fight with everybody. Like I'm just so stubborn and always got to, I always got to learn everything the hard way, you know, like it can never be easy for me. So anyways, I'm trying all these horses and, and he's telling me I'm wrong and whatever. After, or it was about high river. So I come in the niche and it was hat in hand and, and, uh, all right show me this horse that, that you're wanting to, they want to sell. Well, I sold the one, but he sold the, I thought he said he sold the, um, less leader. And that was the nice one. He said for 15,000. And, um, so we only had the, the right leader left and it has a horse named 50, which I still own today. I said, okay, how much? He said 10,000. So price hasn't changed. So, um, just my luck. Right. But I, so I say, I'll take the horse. And, you know, I started using them. I took them out. Well, I said, well, why don't you try them with your outfit? And, and then Kirk was there, too. And he chimes in the background and said, well, hook them with the good ones so you know what you got. And I said, yeah, okay, I will. So, anyways, we go out the next morning. I hooked my, my three best horses I had at the time. And then I hooked 50 on the right lead. And I went out there and, and uh, you know, I make my practice turn over. I'm trying to hold back my charging wheeler. And, you know, I still can't drive and whatever. And, uh, you know, horn goes and i make like the tightest turn uh, you know like you can make like it, it felt like sex you know what i mean like it just you could hear the the hub just screech the barrel and and uh, you know i've come out and we're going 100 and i'm turning them loose and like you just i just never had a horse like that or drove one really that was just point and shoot and you just you could just feel it and you just had all this confidence and as i'm coming by the bottom barrel uh, on my way around, you know, because I don't leave the half track woke, I'd run him the next night. I just yelled to Kirk, I'll take him, you know, and, and uh, I ended up, that was the same season. I finished one point out of, you know, what turned out to be the Calgary spot. So what I learned from that experience was when you, when you need the horse, you got to buy the horse. You know what I mean? There's just no other choice, I don't think. Yeah, and when you got a hole in your lineup, you're only you've heard the term you're only as good as your weakest link and it often is referred to like a relay team in track and field. When you've got a weak link, that weak link is can be so huge. Like, yeah. You would and depending on the position, easier said than done to fill the fill the hole, but that one horse can can really really make or break you and it can it not only are you getting rid of your weakest link but it maybe your other horses that were at this level are now at this level because that horse that be if he's capable of making the other three better like how do you even quantify that right so you got to take all that into consideration yeah for sure i've had you on for quite a while now but i i texted around to a couple guys and and uh asked some stories and i texted grandpa and, and uh he more or less talked about you know the outriding career and, and stuff that you touched on earlier and and, uh, and, uh, you know, when you were young and starting and, and, uh, he said more or less same thing, you know, he, you were young and he was winning and, and, uh, but, but obviously it was a mass fade in heaven, you know, looking back on it in hindsight. And, uh, um, one guy, I won't, I won't tell you who it is. Uh, he, he gave me two stories to ask you about. So, um, I'm not sure if you can talk about them or not. Um, you might, this might give it away just by his spelling and his grammar. But I said, I said, give me some stories about Vig. uh, I'm, bring him on the podcast tomorrow. I want to ask him some, some stuff. He said, okay, 
ha ha, okay. Ask him about costume the night with Sean calf robes on and got burnt. So do you know what that means? <laughs> no, I, I honestly don't know how to decipher that. Yeah, well, I didn't know either, but I thought I thought with a with a burnt costume and Sean Castle, you might remember what he what he's talking about. But um, well, if you don't remember that one, here's the next one. You this will this will give it away. So he's given he's given you a, he's he's being real good to you here. Ask him about the time he jumped in the chuck wagon at the Calgary Stampede with no lines in it. Pause. And then Kinger jumped off the horse and got on the right leader and turned the outfit and stopped him when he threw the. And then when they stopped him, you had to throw your shorts out. Ha ha! That's what he says. So <laughs> okay, uh, so now I know I know who you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, give himself the props too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a wild heat. I, I get asked about that quite a bit still to this day. I actually no was kidding. riding for your your grandfather at the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when Tyler got pumped out of the wagon, I was riding a horse that I had tried to buy off off your grandfather called doomsday d it's funny like i tried to buy him and i ended up riding him for him or i was autumn during this chaotic heat but what most people don't know from that is i almost ended up on my ass the same as hell me great on the first turn because when i come out of the barrels when i took three hard shots of like rock or i don't even know but i got it hard so what what happened? Few, like, can you start from the horn? Like, like what went wrong with Tyler? And then you were riding for Grandpa. So, like, what barrels were you guys on and stuff? Well, we were on barrel three, and I was throwing off peg. And so, okay. typically, if you're on a shorter barrel and you're on off peg or leaders, you're one of the first guys out of the barrels. Okay. Right. So I was out pretty quick. So I was the first guy to kind of run into it. So when when I took those clumps to the to the eye and stuff, I put my head down like an idiot like you should never do you need to know where you're going especially yeah. out of the barrels when everything's happening and you're going the fastest that you are in the race and there's that was when there was four outriders per wagon and when i looked up i was in Kelmick stovrak and that horse kind of jarred to the side around it and hit it hit the wagon but stayed up on his own like i just was doing a terrible job of, of riding the horse but when he hit that i almost went for a ride along with helmig and i remember watching helmig fly across the track and I went holy shit and I'm still kind of digesting what's going on because I didn't see the I didn't see what had happened right you know what I mean to me it looked like they were all running their race and in their lane going into the first turn and in the frame of me putting my head down like an idiot I kind of run into the back of Helming's wagon and then I when I seen him fly out in front of me I knew his horses were going around the track without anybody so I don't know what I was thinking. It just it happens very fast. If you, I, by the time I run him down, I'm about the third turn, and so, that's not like a pretty long time. And you're talking about ten seconds. So more or less, you're out riding, and you're you're kind of like I, Calgary. I always get the same thing, like dirt clumps in the face and stuff like that. So then you're you're coming, and then more or less, you you're kind of just watching. You, you're not sure what happened to Tyler, but you watch him get ejected from the wagon. And then all of a sudden it's uh, like panic starts to set in. Then you're like, okay, well there's, you know, that, cause that's more or less the job as an outrider that, you know, we're there for safety and we're there to, to, to save wagons and, and horses and stuff like that when, when things happen, because we're the only ones that can, can catch up to them. So, so that's kind of more or less 
what was going through your mind is, is he gets ejected and then you're trying to jump in the wagon. Well, my first thought was run up to the leaders or the wheelers and just grab a hold of them. Right. Is, and that's typically what most guys will do or have done in, in situations like that. And for whatever reason, I was like, man, if they go to the rail, which is what they're trained to do, most resources are trained to run to the rail, quick a shorter, you know, in the shortest distance around the track. I just decided to go for it for whatever reason, and I don't really remember why or what came over me, but we got in out of probably pure-ass luck. If I tried to do it again, it probably wouldn't end so well. But when I got in, there was no lines because Tyler had taken him with him when he flew out of the wagon, but I never... Uh, you didn't know that. No, and you're going pretty quick at this spot, <laughs> like, and your mind is on jumping in a wagon that's moving really, really fast. Like I, I didn't even enter my my thought process that the lines wouldn't be there right that's right so once i got up to the seats and there was no lines like now you're (laughs) now you're screwed (laughs) yeah so that's why i got out of the wagon box and started kind of walking up the pole to their heads and i was just trying to cheer them a little to the right i just wanted to get off of the rail right and so as i was trying to i was trying to slow them down trying to get them off the rail and another rider rode up and I don't remember who, but I remember Rio coming up beside me. And you got to remember, this was heat nine, too. So a guy's already rode eight heats. You're half tired, and now you're balancing on this pole, and you're trying to stay standing, and it's getting pretty hairy, right? But you're Well, the outfit's running down with no driver, and there's guys around, and it's in front of however many people at the Calgary Stampede. And, yeah, shit's going on. Yeah, and however fast you're going, it feels like you're going five times faster than that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I remember begging Rio, like, somebody help me. I just want to get these things stopped. And when you're in the heat of the moment in a shitty spot like that, you're literally looking for anybody to give you a hand. And Rio rode up, and he jumped off his horse onto the right leader and turned him right away. And in doing so, Dalfick slowed right down to like a jog to where we could get off and stop them just because that's what they're trained to do once they get going the other way they know okay the race is over right they keep running counterclockwise as you know i know you know this is just for your audience but they keep running counterclockwise they don't know the race is over sometimes and they'll they have such big hearts they'll just keep running so we needed to get turned but i'm way back on the pole and i can't really turn them so at this point, too, the lines are getting jerked into the wheels and stuff, so the horses are jerking, the pole's jerking, and now I need, like, an exit strategy. And that's when I jumped onto the left wheeler because I was like, if this jerks anymore and I fall down, like, I'm getting run over and it's not going to end well. But yeah, I owe Rio one. Well, yeah, it was just wild. And I owe Rio one for that because a lot of guys rode by and a lot of guys were – uh, you don't expect anybody to do anything crazy, but you just, in the moment, I was like, anybody, grab a line, grab a horse, do something. And he, he got up there, got on, and we got turned around. So everything was all good. The horses were fine. Tyler was pretty messed up. Kind of, I don't want to say it ended his career, but it, that was the beginning of the end. He kind of, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So, well, he wasn't, he wasn't young when it happened. And I remember like he was in the hospital for months after that, even like surgeries and it was with his hair too, if I remember correctly. So yeah, that, that, that'd put anybody down for a while. 
Well, you got a 260-pound man skipping across the track uphill because the track is banked, right? Yeah. You got yeah. a guy skipping across that, and he, he went all the way to the outside outside rail. So you can imagine how much, you know, torque was coming off of that wagon seat. So you're not walking away from that real good. He just He's too big, and there was there was just too much force. There's actually a YouTube clip, too, for anybody that wants to go check it out. Like, might might put a bit of a better picture. I, don't, I can't remember if it was Global or who covered it. Somebody covered it, but it, it was about 8, 10 years old. But it's easy to find if you Google. Um, I, well, I don't know what you Google, Chance Vegan, Tyler Helming, uh, Outriding, you know, something of that nature anyways, and, and you can check it out there. Um, Cass, you had one story you wanted to ask about, right? Yeah, and just for uh, that link, I'll find it and put it on our Facebook page. Um, so if you go to After the Ninth on Facebook, it will be there. Um, Chance, you've been really active on social media lately, and you've been letting people ask you questions. Um, there was a story about Croc at the Calgary Stampede. Yeah, for whatever reason, people seem to think that I outrode in Crocs as like a style thing or to prove a point or something. The truth was I had... Uh, Injured my foot really, really bad. Like, I, I had injured the big bone in your heel. And most of the bones in your feet are really small. And the biggest one by far is in your heel. And it, my heels got so swollen, I couldn't, I couldn't put my foot in a shoe. So in order to outride, I taped the croc to my foot. And, and that was fine because there was no pressure on it. But the, that was when we were four outriders. So... Before each race, you had to have a, a small pep talk with the crew saying, you know, when the horn goes, stay the hell off me because if one of those aluminum shoes comes down on me, this is going to be the end of my year. So, yeah, a lot of people make fun of me about that as if I was making a fashion statement, but it was, I wasn't getting out there any other way because I couldn't fit my foot in any footwear. That's the story behind that. I literally did the same thing because I, like, same thing wasn't really a fast statement but i broke my toe literally just before like a few hours before the race when i was wrapping horses and one jumped and and uh um is a medicine hat and uh jumped on my foot and broke my big toe tore the nail right off at that instant and then like first thing that comes to mind was, was crocs because i watched you do it like it's quite literally so it's, it's funny it's funny how much like um, I kind of think about that now too a little bit. Like, I don't know if I'm, I'm obviously not in the same boat as you were, but it's funny how much influence you have, um, or, you know, around or, or say on the people that that are around you and and uh, growing up in the sport and stuff. Because you know, it's such a it's such a small tight knit community. It, it's uh, it's crazy. You know, like I've I've learned you know lots from you and just watching you and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, because you were you were the next guy in line when, when I was coming up and, and, uh, you know, you were that guy and, and, and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's just funny how much kids watch and, and, uh, how it all plays out in our sport. Yeah. I had this, a similar conversation with Dale Gray, Quinn Dorchester. I mean, Quinn was a guy that always rode for my dad and did a really good job. And my dad really liked having him on leaders cause he was a good lead man. And he didn't realize how good Quinn was until he hired me when I was 16 and I didn't know what I was doing and I was doing such a bad job. And he said, you know, you can't do it, so pay attention to Quinn. So then I started watching Quinn and I started watching Dale Gray because, you know, he was kind of the top cop back then. And 
you never know who's watching, you know. I never went and told those guys I thought they were great and I'm going to go and watch you because you never yeah. know who's watching. Yeah, that's funny for sure. Um, that's, that's all about I got. We took in, well, we're just over two hours here of your time. You got anything else, Cass? No, I'm good. Perfect. Well, yeah, I don't know, Chance. Thanks so much for coming on. That was uh, down the line once I get some few other guys on. Uh, there's so many stories I, I didn't get asked you, and I, I still want to um, ask you about uh, whatnot, like with riding with Rio and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. So um, hopefully we get get back uh, get you back on, and, and uh, Happy New Year's to you as well, and uh, good luck in the rest of the off season. Yeah, we'll definitely do this again. I'll be looking forward to it. We'll talk soon, and uh, hope you had a good Christmas, and like I said, Happy New Year. Take care. Sounds good. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye, guys. Bye, And thank you to Chance for uh, coming on the podcast and being with us and uh, for listening to me, who had no voice when we did that interview. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that, guys. Yeah, we're we're both actually kind of sick during the – you were you were a lot more sick than I was, but uh, we're both been kind of getting over some the flu or the cold or whatever it is. So uh, apologize for anybody if uh, if uh, you caught on to that. Um, you know what I what I love about doing those, even when I'm sick. But what I love is there's so much that comes out of those interviews, Dayton, that I don't think anybody would hear otherwise. Like I didn't know that Chance wanted to be an outrider before he wanted to be a driver. Yeah, I didn't either, and that's someone that like you know you grew up with. So it's it's kind of nice because um, it's it's the, the beauty about a podcast is it's long form, so you you just kind of can hold your breath and and uh, take a minute and and uh, you know work through the conversation more or less like in a short term interview. It's like you're just trying to get as many questions off and and guys give you generic answers and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's definitely nice, and we we're just kind of shooting from the hip. That's the way that that. Uh, um, we were going to try and do it and, 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 uh, more comfortable to it. I don't know if we kind of, I feel like we kind of might maybe went back over a few things and stuff like that, but, uh, ultimately, I don't know. I, I, I got a lot out of the conversation. I had fun doing it. So, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I'm now kind of taking a quick look at, uh, elsewhere. Um, there's been quite a few developments kind of in the past month or so, um, in the professional world of track wagon racing. Um, Bonneville is back on the WPCA tour date. Yeah, yeah, Bonneville's back on. I'm not sure the politics uh, or the reasoning, one, that they left in the first place, and then, or that the WPCA left there, and then now that they're back, because I know the WPCA was racing there, I think there was... um, um, I guess more or less politics or business that was that was going on um, in between that, but um, I'm sure the WPCA is, is uh, happy to have another show back in the running. Bonneville is a fun little town, um, and uh, I have really always enjoyed it there. It was always one of my favorite because you would go to Calgary, you'd hustle and bustle in the ten days, and it's, you know, huge production, and then a day later you're in Bonneville where it's you know usually wicked hot and there's a lake and. And uh, the town, it's a lot more low-key, but the, the, the town, the community, and the, um, you know, people that put put the event on were always just really into it and just, just super people. And it was just a really, really good, uh, um, you know, good amount of energy put into the show. So I always had a lot of fun at Bonneville, and uh, I'm definitely glad. Hopefully I'll get a compete there um, maybe this year or, or in some coming years. And it's interesting because in our first episode, we had Logan on, 
And Logan said that he just found that two-week break between Calgary and Strathmore was just too much. Uh, so now they have Bonneville. They have a week between Calgary and Bonneville, and then Strathmore is after that. So it, it's almost like they listened to drivers like Logan who heard and said, hey, this is too long. I want to go a little bit more. So I think that's the interesting part for me. Well, the way that it, the decision is made is it's actually made – I don't even know. Logan might be on the board of directors, to be honest. So I, I'm not sure. I know he, I'm pretty sure he has been in the past. Um, so, you know, the way, the way decisions are – the um, political structure, the way decisions are made in the WPCA is there's, you know, eight driver directors that ultimately are sitting on the board and they're putting the votes in and they're, they're making a majority of the decisions and then um, – They'll have general meetings, and a lot of those decisions will come back down to the whole group, and then you'll vote on those groups, but based on what the, the board has um, gotten to to that point. Um, so, you know, like it's actually made by drivers, and, and it's helpful and hurtful in, in both ways, I think. Um, but uh, the, the decisions are made by drivers nonetheless. So um, maybe that was the idea that that the that was too long for guys to have off. I know it's a lot longer season now with this big show at the end with century downs, it changes the whole game. Um, you know, cause you're, you're almost saving your horses for, for that opportunity. But then at the same time, you have to run hard in the last few shows, you know, to get to the opportunity to, to be in the top 12 uh, at century down. So it, it, it changes the dynamic. I think, um, unlike it has ever been before. I know kind of pump the tires on what Century Down has been doing. I know everyone pumps the tires on what Century um, Down does for the sport, but it's, it's justified. Like, it, it's huge. And now adding Bonneville into it, it's just another show, um, you know, that, that plays into that where guys are, <laughs> you know, forced to make some tough decisions. You just in Calgary and, and uh, whatever, but you're at the, you know, say – 18th hole and you need to climb six spots to get into the shot at century downs and you didn't have that good of a calgary and and uh maybe you want to go a bit harder to get a shot at, at making a top 12 in century to win the um horse trailer the dash or whatever it is you know so it, it's uh it's it's a lot of fun now and it's a lot more racing you know that to add bonnieville whatever it is say three or four days and then add century that's five days you know so think in two years we gain nine days of racing and before we'd only previously raced whatever it was 40 or something or, or 50 or whatever it is. So, you know, that's a huge, huge increase on the, you know, duration of the season. Um, so yeah, it, it's a big deal to, to have Bonneville and then, and then uh, um, the rest play into that. Well, if my math is correct, and I think I've double checked it like four times uh, without Calgary, there's 45 nights of racing in the WPCA this year. That's and that's Calgary. with Bonneville. Yeah, that's with Bonneville, but without Calgary. Yeah, so 55 nights. And, I, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of racing. So that, that definitely is going to be playing into guys' strategies. I might have to ask some, some of the senior guys kind of, what do you do now? Because you got so much more season and so much more ground to cover. And, and uh, you can't keep just running your horses uh, the same nights uh same shows and, and just keep going with the same ones all season on the same barrels because they're just not going to last that long they're going to get tired they're going to start making mistakes it's, it's just and then you're going to wear them out you know for the duration of the next season or whatever like they're not machines they they need time and, and they have very very short peaks um that's one thing about the way that chuck wagner's are training they have very very short peaks so they're not at their best um 
you know, for the entire season. Um, most guys try and get the horses to peak right around Calgary, obviously, and that's why it's the best. Um, racing, in my opinion, is because everyone's horses are, are peaking and, and, and their train schedules in the spring are designed to have the horses hitting their, their highest strides, you know, at that point in the season. So it might change some guys' spring training plans. It might um, just make some guys pack a few more horses down the road this year just to get um, across those extra nine days of racing and stuff because, uh, you know, guys are playing long-term too. They're trying to plan for next season, the season after that, and five years down the road. So it, it makes a big difference anyways. As a guy who was racing but wasn't in Calgary, did you find those 10 days of not racing, while it didn't get you the big um, sponsor's dollars, did you think it helped you at all? Uh, it did the first year when I won Rocky that year because uh, if you look at the time, uh, I mean, it'd be, again, it'd be hard to pull up the stats of it, but I remember having a, a really, really average start of the year. I took some penalties in Grand Prairie and Saskatoon that year, and then I kind of got my stride figured out and, and did okay. But I was searching for leaders, kind of like what me and Chance were talking about in the podcast, uh, searching for left leaders and, and right leaders and trying to put new ones there. It just wasn't really working out. And I never really found one. And then uh, I ended up buying that 50 horse. This is the same year, and we talked about that in the podcast. And then um, things started kind of turning around. And I also had a month off because there was no more Bonneville that year. And I wasn't in Calgary. So I had about a month. And then I went home with 50 um, because I had him at that point now. And then it was kind of like, okay, let's try some stuff because I have a few more core members of the group, if you will, on my two outfits. So um, I literally took a month that year and uh, involved and, and uh, gave the horses about two weeks off. Like I gave them too long off, actually. Um, and then I almost rushed them back into it and started training again. And then when it, when Strathmore come, I raced in Strathmore, um, Dawson and Rocky that year. And between those three shows, I think I, uh, met up the other previous, whatever it was, five or six shows to the first half of the season in just those three shows and points alone. So like, I really, really came back hot that year. So I took a lot of, you know, kind of gave my horses a break is what I'm saying in that month off and then figured some stuff out. So it definitely, um, it definitely changes guys strategies if you're not in Calgary or if you are or whatever, just because you, you have to always be looking for an edge on your competitors. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know what, that's really interesting because we always like me and you, especially we always talk about how Calgary is where you want to be, but there are benefits to not making Calgary just not financially. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I mean, it's hard to say that that because um, it, it's just so much in your blood that, like, as a wagon driver, that you want to be at Calgary. So it's hard to say that there are are benefits, but I, I suppose there are some uh, that way. But but the the pros or the cons definitely outweigh the pros of not being there. It just it's just not even a question. Um, because that, you know, think about it this way. If you did have the money or the sponsorship or the whatever, you know, and the 10 days of racing, um, with that amount of money, you're going to be going down the road with WPCA anyways. That's what people don't understand. That's why it's so hard to, to not be in Calgary because if you're going to race in the WPCA, you're going to spend the money that it costs to go down the road regardless. 
the only thing is you're, you have 10 days off, which it's kind of like whoop they do, but you're also missing a hundred thousand in sponsorship money, or at the very least, I think the lowest a guy usually gets is about 50,000. If you run dead last every day at Stampede, it's 20,000 minimum in day money. That's the lowest you can come out with. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's minimum losing 70,000 regardless, not competing at the Stampede. So, you know, if even if I had to compete the 10 days, um, I could buy two pretty nice horses uh, that would make me go a lot faster with <laughs> $70,000. Or I wouldn't be dipping out of my own bank account. And, and uh, you know, you could, you, could, um, you, could, you could have a lot more um, faith in the sport or in, in what you're doing if it wasn't taking so much out of you and taking so much from you. Um, trying to make it to Calgary, if that makes sense. So what you're saying is cast kind of look at the positive sides of this. <laughs> yeah, well, just, it's just really, really hard. Like, you know, you, you we'll talk to some in the future and we'll bring them on the show. But um, even Chance was saying, like, his dad, Mike, was in that position in Red Deer. And, and uh, like, uh, you know, it's it's very true that, that if, you know, some of these senior guys in the sport don't get a re-invite to Calgary, they're done, they're quitting. Because a lot of these guys are 40-something years old. They're still paying off mortgages. They're still paying off bills from horses or liners or whatever it is. And if they all of a sudden lose that $100-something-thousand of revenue from Calgary, they're not dipping into their own pockets, you know, going back in and uh, and uh, trying to wagon race for one more season to, to live the dream or whatever, you know what I mean? Just because um, they got kids, they got bills, they got, you know, other stuff and they've raced for long enough. And, and you know, it's the same thing you've seen with like Lane Bremner or, or uh, Ray Crotto. That's another topic we got to talk about, you know, a few years ago. It's just, and, and Crotto was in Calgary when he walked away. Um, maybe we can kind of talk to him about that when we bring him on the show, like his reasonings, but I know they were largely financial. So um, it's just it's just way way too tough when you're when you're not in Calgary and uh, and uh, the guys that don't make it are always faced with a with a tough decision. So looking at last year, um, the lowest auction price was Danny Ringette at fifty two five. Yeah, so that means regardless, I mean Calgary takes twenty percent off the top for having a room filled with with bidders, so quick math that's 10 grand so 42 but then he walked out with if they got last every single day which i know he didn't he probably walked out with say 25 at the very minimum and that is 67 is that right yeah that's uh neither me or Dayton are mathematicians but that sounds about right to me no yeah so um like even for a guy like that, a rookie, that pays off a lot of bills. Like stick that in the bank, Danny. Don't don't spend it. You know what I mean? Like uh, it it helps out a lot. Um, just for especially younger people and and uh, guys starting out. Like once you finally make that, it's like a relief off your shoulders. And I believe Chance kind of crossed over that too. Like talking about when he finally makes it and, and stuff like that. And and it's just it's not such a grind all the time when you're there. You know. And then the CPCA has some new names that are uh, pretty exciting on their list this year, too. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, first one I'll go over is Ray Crotto. Um, and we actually had the poll on Instagram. I believe Ray won it. Uh, he's the most requested out of the ones that we offered. And we actually gave, like, an open um, choice, too. So you could choose if you wanted to, to send some, you know, suggestions our way. But Rick and uh, Ray were neck and neck. Oh, did Ray win? Ray came out with a couple more votes, but they were the top two. 
Okay. Well, I actually, I was going to have Ray on for the very first show. I talked to him and asked him. I hadn't talked to him yet um, again since then about coming on. But I asked him if he'd come on. He said, yeah, for sure. And then um, Logan got back to me just shortly after that. So we ended up having Logan and then it just kind of changed. But now, hello, Ray Carano is back on the CPJ tour for the 2020 season. And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of things are, are probably changing in his life. Uh, right now and uh, <laughs> taking that big step to get back into wagon racing and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that's uh, definitely, I want to have him on and, and kind of go over that, like, you know, what's your plans and, and uh, like, how are you going to approach us, man? Because it's, it's not easy starting no matter if you've done it before or, or haven't or whatever. It's it's kind of a grind. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, we'll go over that. And, and he's a great guy to talk to as well. Like, like talks really smooth and, and he's good to listen to. He did a, uh, Sportsnet, um, you could go look on his Facebook page, and, and uh, I can't remember who else shared it, but um, he was on Sportsnet 960 there in Calgary, and he dropped a really, really good interview about um, what kind of that whole drama was going on and stuff too. So if you want to get a little bit tidbit of, of what he's like, um, go listen to that, and hopefully we can get him on soon. The second person is uh, Riley LaTondre. Um, obviously, she was from the WCA um she's been racing for a few years now i don't know the exact date but uh you know when when riley first came on she was kind of like she was the the first you know female to race a wagon and it might have been a wca but it was kind of like a a a big deal um for you know she's northern like she's from up here so um it's kind of a big deal for us and and i think you know the first year probably didn't um, go so great for her like when she was starting but uh, from what I've seen last year she's definitely taken you know a big few big strides um, forward and uh, yeah she's a great person maybe we could have her on in the future there's just you know quick thought she's a, a good person to talk to as well and uh, and uh, now she's taken another big step in, in her career and, and going over to the CPCA um, so yeah best of luck to her and uh, maybe we can catch up with her and, and uh, maybe around the first few shows or something like that and, and see how that's going for her yeah that'd be awesome and uh, you know it's there, there's a lot for us to talk about in the coming months. Um, training season's just around the corner. Uh, you have these big names coming out of woodwork. So it's, there's a lot of excitement around Chuck Wagon racing right now. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, it's it's uh, kind of the off season, so, so so things are a little bit more dead. But um, as we get, get more into the season, we can kind of – see how all these things that are developing in the, in the off season, the, the horse swaps, the, the, you know, people changing locations or, or association story. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, people coming on a new associations and, uh, like, you know, Lane and them and, uh, Dale making Calgary and some of the other rookies and stuff like that. So, you know, in a few months, uh, if everybody sits tight, we'll be able to see how all this uh, stuff plays out and it'll be a lot on. Well, I think that's it for me, and uh, I don't know if there's anything else for you, Date, but uh, it was good to, you know, get this back going. I kind of missed doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, sorry, everybody, that we didn't, you know, do this sooner, but we're going to – I'll get in touch with uh, Ray right away today, and, and uh, I know we're we're waiting for this uh, chance one to come out, so it'll be out shortly. Um, obviously you'll, you'll hear it when, when, uh, it drops and when I'm, when you'll hear this anyways, but, uh, we'll get, we'll get Ray on hopefully and, uh, get some more out to you guys and, uh, kind of get this ball rolling again. And as always, you can follow after the ninth on Instagram and Facebook. 
Listen to this wherever you can get your podcast. And if you have questions, email us at afterthenightquestions at gmail.com. I'm Cass Patterson with Jason Sutherland, and we will see you next time. Thank you, everybody.